My master, I fear not all of your dark lords will do as you command. From his throne, Nagash turned, fixing his empty eye sockets upon Archon. The leech priest knew that, like himself, the great necromancer could still see, in a sense. He would not be able to discern Archon's scorched and blackened bones, or the headpiece worn by the mortuary cult for great ceremonies. With witch sight, however, it was possible to see into the spirit realm. In that spectrum, Nagash's true being was revealed, for he was great power, breathed in dark energies. Death magic was bound to his very soul. Although his master had only recently returned, Archon guessed that he rarely looked upon the mundane world of the physical. He grew less and less concerned with the material realm, despising its transitory nature. At last, Nagash spoke. I am sure that your doubts are entirely justified, faithful Archon, and I see you still have questions about my plan. Be patient. All shall be laid plain in time. Now I must have more sustenance. Bring the remaining slaves. Soon, the wailing cries of absolute terror began anew. And we are back. Well, not all of us are back. Greg and I are back here with Chapter 5. Welcome back, Greg. Welcome back. Well, Meatloaf said two out of three ain't bad. (laughs) Uh, Yes, he did. Absolutely right on that one. Um, So, yeah, Chris had to go. He's got, you know, family duties. And uh, we're going on and on forever about this. So he said, uh, well, as you heard, he said he'll he'll be listening to make sure that... uh, I don't say anything stupid, and um, and that we get this done right. So, all right. Now, chapter five jumps in on. Uh, this is all the the battle throughout uh, Nehekara. Yeah, and uh, we before we went on break. I like I said, I wanted to get Chris's opinion before we went on break. I did like this chapter. I like this whole book, but I guess I still feel like we're not. It doesn't. Have that sense of danger and urgency that the uh, that the fourth chapter had, but we'll get into it when we hit the points. Um, I did like the description here. It starts off how Nehekara sits silent with sprawling tomb cities, baking in the desert sun, and then comes the blackness surrounding and enshrouding the land of the dead. Um, this is this is you know Nagash is doing that spell where he you know pumps out. All the all the black, yeah, um, and, and it's it's focusing around the black pyramid, and then King Kalazar, the one-time ruler of Zandri, and now high commander of the greatest war fleet of Nehekara. He's one of the first people to stand under this storm as it rolls in. He's on his battle barge, the crowned Sphinx, ready to stop any fleet that approaches, or else try to land, or else he can land and put support where wherever he's needed, up and down. The river, um, and who he, King Kalazar is protecting the river. King Behadesh is uh, ground forces guarding the westernmost appro- approaches through the Badlands. And yeah, I love it, Andrew. Yeah, and and he's 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 there. His army is just buried, like they just got yeah. to where they're supposed to be and stopped. And like the sand and the sandstorms buried them. And of course, who cares? You know, it doesn't bother them at all, and it's it's it's, it's nice cover. Yeah, especially for someone like the orcs coming out of the Badlands, they're not the sharpest of tools. So exactly, I just thought it was really cool. How they just well, just I mean, it's you know, you see the rule in the game, and you don't 
you know, at least the people I've played with Tomb Kings don't don't have too much stuff buried under the sand pop up. And here no. you get the whole flipping army. I mean, that's that would be kind of cool if, if they had a rule where you could just, you know, like what was it? The um, what's the rule that they used to have for demons where you could uh, you'd basically deep strike half the army for forty k. 40k, yeah. Well, nothing used to start on. I don't know how it is now. They used to start with no models on the table. Um, so if your opponent went first, there was nothing to shoot at. Oh, right. And then, yeah. Then, so, yeah in your first turn, half your army came in. Right. And then, yeah, they changed the rules. So if, if at the end of your turn, if you don't have stuff, you're dead. So they changed up those rules. But, you know, the idea that they're just sort of popping in from the warp, that idea that the army just pops up out of the sand, the whole army, I thought it was... It's kind of cool. You know, the Tomb King armies sound really cool when you read the fluff. <laughs> they really... Um, to be fair, they can be really cool on the table, but um, but people don't want to take really cool armies. That's true. That, that's, that's, that's the problem. I played against Tomb Kings my last game at Bits, and I don't play against a lot of Tomb Kings. Now... Granted, the guy had the worst luck on the planet and couldn't get a spell off, and he had, like, a bit of a light council, and he had Archon, and he had his, uh, and he had the casket and just couldn't get any spells off to save his life. So had he been spelling me off the table, it might not have been as fun, but he did go with a, a theme army and ran things through, and it was a neat army, and it was a fun game to play. So I guess you're right. Yeah, I mean, I've played against guys who've taken big units of... Um, uh, Ushabti and light magic them up, and you know they're not actually with 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 a few spells. The problem is you need the few spells on them. With a few spells on them, they can do a number on a lot of stuff. But <clears throat> when you go to tournaments, even the people who know they're not going to win it seem to want to have to try and place as high as possible all the time. Yeah, um, I know Ben Cohn yeah. likes to go and he'll take just a bunch of war sphinxes and and a bunch of other stuff, and you know, dude. <laughs> He was, I could not, I just could not crack those war sphinxes when he came in with me with a bunch of them with what I had. I was like, wow, this is actually could be pretty tough if he gets some decent rolls off, so. Yeah, I mean, the problem is it's those kind of armies that have, you know, a weakness that appears and then ruins their day. Yeah. Um, that's that's why people don't take them. But yeah, there's, there's cool stuff you can do. So let's see. who. Oh, Queen, uh, Queen Kalita, we all know who Kalita is, and King Tharuk. They, now, they're supposed to go and march to Marak and guard the western entrance to the Charnel Valley. Yeah. Uh, and Kalita's just like, yeah, no. No, Neferata's coming. I hate her. I mean, they're related. They're like blood relatives. Isn't that her aunt or her cousin or something like that? Oh, I, I can't remember the, the exact. I thought she was in a court as something. Yeah. Um, yeah, because people, you say, obviously, we all know who Kalita is. Well, people know who Kalita in the game is. But Kalida in the fluff, people might not know quite so much. Yeah. And there's just no way that she would leave Lamia. Oh, yeah, here, the very thought of her cousin and ancient nemesis yeah. returning. So, yeah, it was her cousin. Yeah. And and uh, Kalida was killed by uh, by Neferata for the, the first time, you know. Yeah. So uh, she's like, she's coming. And, and so Kalida wants revenge. And so it's not like a, she recognizes Cetra's rule, but that army is her army, and she's going to command it as she sees fit. And so she's like, she knows if Neferata's coming, she's coming back to, she's coming back home. And yeah. uh, if she's coming to Lamia, that's where Kalita's going, because 
she's more interested in in killing her cousin. Now, what I liked about this is this is exactly what Nagash expects Neferata or, or Kalita to do. He knows that they hate her. Big time, yeah. And so he basically says, okay, you're going to Lamia, and you're going to go there and stay there and hold out as long as you can. You know, he doesn't even necessarily expect her to win because let's, we already determined last episode she is a horrible tactician when it comes to the battlefield. Yeah. But he'll send her there with some troops and get in there and tuck in and basically hold them there in fighting as much as possible. I don't care if all these skeletons die. I don't care if all these undead die. You know, do your best, hold off as long as you can, and then get out of there. And that's yeah, there's three yeah. or four cities down that side of um, Nehekara, so there's yeah. plenty of troops for her to keep busy. Right, and so that's the whole plan is start to play a distraction. Now, I did like I thought this part was interesting, and it was a little weird because I kind of glossed over it. And then as I'm taking notes, because when we got you get to the later part, you're like, oh, so Setra's got everyone preparing for war, and you've got most of the Necrotexts are sitting building the Great Wall of Kemri. And I'm like, isn't there already a giant wall around Kemri? Like, that was part of the description, this big wall. So I'm like, what are they doing? And then, <clears> you know, later you get there, and they built a second wall around the first wall. And I was just like, oh. It was weird, but it was kind of a it was kind of a clever ruse at the same time when they describe it when it's all done. Um, but then everyone else goes to the Valley of Kings to fix the hieroglyphs and awaken all the mighty war statues. Basically, all the glyphs and all the magic that sort of time and sand and stuff is sort of worn down. He sends these guys out there to to get these machines go these machines of war going again. Yeah, everyone knows this this is like their, their final fight kind of thing. Yeah. You might as well you're going to just use everything, throw out everything at the enemy because there's no point in holding anything back. Yeah. So, um King Far uh of Numus empties his whole necropolis and marches to the Great Salt Plain. He's setting up south of the River of Blightwater in the South Plain. And this is where a lot of people try to come through if they can get through the Deadlands. The, the Deadlands are pretty inhospitable, but it's it's a quick journey through there right to Kemri. So he's 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 defending that place. Um, and I like how they describe it, the blackness that's coming in. They keep calling it the blackness. You know, it's, it, and it, it didn't describe it as, you know, dark clouds. It's this weird blackness. And it wasn't moving like clouds. It was, it was described, it's a vortex of horrifying proportions. And the center yeah. is over the Black Pyramid. And they said. Yeah, it, it, yeah, the epicenter would finally settle on the Black Pyramid. Everyone knows where it's going. Yeah. It's got that tight line. Yeah, and it's it's spinning over, and it's uh, it's already got three quarters of Nehekara covered in this blackness, and Cetra's just waiting because he knows Nagash is coming. Um, okay, now this, of course, as the dwarf player, this is the one. This is this is the most important part of the of the chapter. But uh, <laughs> so they cut to Nagash, who is standing there in his wherever you know where they're at. With his mouth unnaturally wide open, vomiting up this darkness. It's just the darkness that is covering up almost the entire country 
of Nehekara. He's just spitting it out of his mouth, and it's just coming out and going into the sky. And it says, for 11 days and nights, he's just standing there with his mouth open, and this stuff is coming out of him. It's so gross and so weird. And then he collapses when it's done. He's completely exhausted. And he couldn't have done it without the dolmen of Valia. And I was like, what the hell's the dolmen of Valia? We all know who Valia is. She's the, you know, the, the female ancestor god of the dwarves. This is the thing that they were fighting over in chapter Yeah, two. the thing that Thoric discovered. Yeah. Well, sort of discovered. He had time to half open the door. Right. Uh, and I looked up what a dolmen was because I didn't know what it meant. Like, I was like, what did he take from her? And so I looked it up, and I just literally got the, the definition here. Uh, it's an archaeology term, a structure usually regarded as a tomb, consisting of two or more large upright stones set with a space between and kept by a horizontal stone. So almost like, like a Stonehenge type thing. It's like a post and lintel phrase. Okay, but it, yeah, it's a little bigger covered. So, And that was actually Valia's tomb, and he consumed the magic stored within the sleeping ancestor goddess herself. So I read that. I I, stopped, I went back and read that a couple times because I was like, "Oh, wait, wait, Valio was there," and they mm. they, they it, so so when he opened the door, she was there. I mean, is, I, is that what you got? In some form, yeah, yeah. Because remember, she said she left, and then they said they would all come back, and said so she's sleeping. So it didn't say <clears> she was the, dead. The dolmen, to me, is because the, they talked about the door, right? It, be the door, so he's probably passed through that to wherever. Yeah, and whatever magic, yeah, whatever magic is in there, he went through it and then consumed the magic stored within the goddess herself. Yeah, drained her dry. Yeah, now, so does that mean she's dead? I mean, or did he just suck out her magic? I'm like, I'm like what? That really? Did they just casually throw this out there? I mean, did he kill her when he sucked out the magic? I mean, holy crap! What's <laughs> she's? I mean, Valley is there. I mean, that's that's like finding Sigmar. Maybe not anymore. Um, well, that's yeah. You know, it's his quest at the end of the day is to achieve godhood. Yeah. So he's, he's going to have to kill some gods doing it. Well, I mean, he needed basically to suck out all her energy to do this, and you know. But I was just but, like, whoa, whoa, whoa! If he knew he needed all that, and he was still that tired, he wouldn't have left any energy in her. Right, I know, and it says that her, there was he consumed the magic stored within her. So, but he didn't say the life force like he sucks out everybody else's soul. Else's soul. So, it does, just, does it if you're a goddess and you've lost all your power? See, exactly. Is it is it just a completely irrelevant whether you're still alive without any power? Jeez, <sighs> oh man, oh man, I want to know what happened. But if they found her, maybe the other two will come back later in the book. Oh, that would be crazy. That would be crazy. All right. So let's see. Uh, Nagash is exhausted. And Archon, he has his guards carry him back to his throne. He puts him on the throne. I love the description of the throne, how it you know it crumbled over thousands of years. But Nagash puts it all back together again, except those cuts from the fell blade that just would not fix. Like, yeah. Where the fell blade cut it, it just wasn't fixing it. Um, and then Archon brings in all these slaves that they had captured over while they were, you know, basically trying to resurrect Nagash. So you've got Empire, dwarfs, orcs, and goblins. Uh, they bring them all in there in front of him, and he closes the doors behind him, and the screaming starts. He, like, swallows all their souls. 
Yeah, thousands of them. Yeah, you know who this reminds me of? Yeah, the emperor, the 40K, great emperor of mankind. Yeah, living off the souls of a thousand psychers a day. Uh, You know, obviously Nagash doesn't need this just to survive, although when he's weak, you know, the emperor obviously is weak. The emperor's on the verge of death, and a thousand a day are keeping him alive. To fight his, you know, do what he, do, keep the Astronomicon open or whatever he's doing. This this reminded me of that. It, it really kind of actually forcefully reminded me of that kind of creeped me out. I was trying to draw parallels between it, but drawing, no, I, I don't think there's any. I, I mean, I'm not trying to create a link, and I'm I'm not expecting in book five or book four, you know, that uh, <laughs> that uh you know one of the space uh, one of the primarchs is not going to show up at the end of this and punch nagash in the face i was more just looking more thematically that the uh the 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 god of of you know or the guy who's trying to become the god of of death and stagnation is doing the exact same thing that the god emperor is trying to do and exactly what has happened to his empire but i guess that maybe they that's are, they are completely different yeah one is the people who are trying to keep the emperor alive are feeding a thousand psychic souls into the machine that keeps him alive. And this one is a guy trying to build his strength back up. Yeah, but I I don't disagree one bit. I just, when I first read it, I was like, what? And I stopped and thought about that. Because, you know, I don't know, why why not think about it? (laughs) Yeah, it does make you think about it, but I think there are people out there who might try and like bring too many parallels between the two. And it's like, well, you know, how else is Nagash going to get his strength back? Exactly. And he, I mean, he's been doing this before in the other books, too. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It's, it's just, you know, it is of, what it is. Of course, if Lehman Russ does show up and shoot his head off at the end of the of, at the end of the series, I called it. I'm just I'm claiming it. I just, you know. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. That won't happen. That would be so... Oh, my God. That would be so stupid. All right. So, let's see. Nagash's armies are on the way to Kemri. Now, Krell gets the toughest path. Does he... Do you think he talks in this? Like, he's got to do... I mean, or does he just silently command his armies? Uh, He doesn't talk very much. I mean, well, I mean, does he even talk to his necromancers? I'm just curious because he does give commands to... The necromancers, and yeah. I mean, does he just have like a psychic voice in your head, or he talks? Okay, he does talk, just not a lot. Uh, talks, yeah. I think I'm trying to remember exactly what happened in the novel. I think there's one point where he talks, and even Kemler's like, "Whoa, <laughs> you, you don't talk very often." I, or, or I, I think I'm trying to remember exactly now because I'm, I'm reading, oh, yeah, reading other books. But there's certainly one point where Kemler's like, uh, or, or someone else. I think Arkham was questioning whether he could even talk or not. <laughs> I think um, I think he can. I could be wrong on that one. I could be making that up. But um, he's yeah, the silent. What? He's the silent Bob of the Warhammer world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's going to come out with a speech about chasing Amy. <laughs> so now, and you know what? I've come to. Okay, obviously, all of the characters get more fleshed out, but it's cool when you get a character like Krell fleshed out because, let's face it, he doesn't talk. We always basically thought he was Kemler's sidekick, you know? And now they get into his head a bit. You know, they give him the most dangerous path. He was a chaos 
warrior, a champion of chaos. And, yes. you know, it's like he gets the hardest path through the Badlands, through the marshes of madness, across the salt plains, you know, because he, he's, tac- he's like a tactical genius. And it's like, oh, really? Because all I ever do is see him walking behind Kemmler, you know? Um, Possibly more importantly, he's the most loyal with Arkan. Yeah. So, you know, well, Nagash I mean, owns him. Yeah. I mean, Nagash gave him exactly what he wanted. You know, hey, uh, you you get to stay alive and you get to kill things. And that's... Well, I think he's it's more like he's just over the years just crushed any individual, you know, individual other thoughts out from him. That's true. Yeah. That actually does come up later when he gets to Kemri and they're describing how beautiful it is. And it's like, yeah, all of that was completely lost on Krell, who just looked at it and figured out how he could destroy it. Yeah. He is. I mean, I do. I really have come to like this character, though. I mean, just crazy stuff with, with where they describe the stuff he does. So let's see what what goes on here. Um, so he's got skeletons beyond count. He is the sledgehammer. That he is the big force that Nagash can trust to send against Kemri. Um, his his job is to go against Kemri, stopping only to destroy Numus if the opportunity arises. So, if you can trash that city on the way, go ahead. Otherwise, just get to the job. Uh, I like Dieter Helsnicht. Uh, the Doom Lord is with Krell. Does this guy have fluff in some other books that I don't know about? Like, is he? I, old- I think I've heard about him. I can't remember him ever being kind of in the game or anything, but okay. Helsnicht's a, a name I've heard about, whether that's in a very small thing or not. Now, uh... And Nagash sort of determines, if I put my best general and my best necromancer together, they should be pretty much unstoppable. Uh, they also sends Manfred through the Badlands, but he keeps going west, all the way west, and then turns south around the South Plain, Salt Plains down to the Mortis River, and he's going to follow that into Kemri. Uh, it's dangerous, but the danger here is, like, to living armies. I mean, yeah. it's, it's inhospitable to life. Uh, you know, it's just, it's all dry and dead areas, and there's nothing put, obviously, to an undead army. That means nothing. Um, I love you. There was a few outposts and watchtowers, and I, I know when you were when we were talking with Chris Tomlin, uh, and I love this part with Manfred again. Manfred was, quote, he was enamored with what could be the easiest path. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's um, he's taken the, the, the course of least resistance. The one that other people have used to more, most effect. It's going to be the easiest way in there and the farthest away from everybody else so nobody's watching him. Uh, like I said, Neferata is going to Lamia as bait, and everybody thinks Nagash is still trying to conquer Nehekara because he still wants to rule Nehekara. And basically, except for Archon, who knows that that's really not the plan at all anymore. Nehekara is, 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 uh, is peanuts. This is chump change. At this point, yes, he's, definitely. he's got a bigger game. So we get to, uh, we get over to Krell. Oh, Harkon the Blacks also. Uh, Luther Harkon. Oh, yes. The king of the vampire. The pirate king of the vampire coast is sent to uh, go down the coast. and He's coming up the Mortis Delta. Yeah, I skipped. I actually skipped that part of my notes on accident. So he's, he's uh, that Sartosa army they very briefly had in. White Dwarf a while ago. Yeah. It, yeah, and uh and in Dreadfleet, 
Okay. And yeah, and then and re-brought back in Dreadfleet. So he's obviously found his way back from wherever he went to in Dreadfleet. Because that was a different... That was got sucked into a All right. vortex or something, I think. Thank God he found his way out of there because nobody wants to be there. But, That's uh, a cracking game. <laughs> Quite, I'm, I've got to buy myself a copy at some point. I know, I do. I really enjoy it. I know, I know several people who will sell you theirs. I thought it was fun when I played it. It's it just is. A pain it's in the a fun game. There's bowls. no doubt about it. Uh, in fact, in, I would say the one problem I had with it was it needed more of those random cards, like for stuff to happen. In many ways, I'm glad it wasn't Mano War because I wouldn't get into Mano War. Yeah. It's, it's another miniatures game, whereas that's a almost a board game. So yep. that's my bit about Dreadfleet. There we go. We'll move along. Uh, let's see. So Krell is just, and of course, the whole, they moved swiftly because they had no need to stop or rest or eat. Um, I love anyone they meet along the way ran or fought and died and then got added to the army. Yeah. Um, yeah, and his army's not pretty. Basically, any time along the way, if, uh, if Helsnick uh, sensed that there were bodies buried somewhere they raised them if they found live bodies they killed them and raised them so his whole army is anything you find just the more bodies the better yeah gw need to put out a an, a zombie sprue of different races yeah i it's the one it's the one thing they're missing in their undead line it's all humans and it's fair enough i understand why but it would be cool to have because there was a regiment of renown wasn't there that was Various undead races. Yeah, because yeah, it's one of those things you can't just take sprues from other races. And you, just, you have to do a lot of work to make them look zombified. Exactly, and that's kind of a pain. If there was something you could do to make it that more easy, you could easily make them look like spirits. Yes. I mean, you can make spirit hosts out of any race you want, but the zombie's not quite as easy. So, and I like how Krell leads from the middle, not necessarily from the front, not from the back. He's got everyone around him. He wants to know where everything is all around him. Oh, and, they, and Nagash resurrected his doomed legion for him. Yeah. So his old fighting buddies, his old drinking buddies. Ulfric, the back, the black-handed. Yep, he's in charge of his cavalry as he was before. Uh, they go through the marshes. They go through the dead marshes. No concern. I love this part. They're, they walk through the dead marshes, and thousands of skeletons wind up buried in the quicksand and the mud. They're marching. They start sinking. They start sinking. Okay, the next ones walk on top of them. If they keep sinking, the next ones walk on top of them. Eventually, there's enough buried that the ground is pretty solid, and the rest of the army can march over them. They lost thousands, basically paving the marshes, you know, chunking them out so that the, the ground was you know, basically marching on the backs of the yeah. ones that got stuck. Yeah, and then they lose a few more to Swamp Beast and Marsh Goblin ambushes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just doesn't mind. Just carry on, keep going. Yeah, He's like, I could. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm gonna get. Not even a worry. Uh, the heavy cav had issues. They started sinking. I think, but the ethereal cav had no issues. <laughs> it just they just went right over the top and kept going. Um, now Helsnick. Uh, I love this part when they go back to Helsnick when they were getting the instructions. And how Helsnick would, it said how he would bow before few people in this world, including the Mortarks. 
He was just like, whatever. Like, he wouldn't bow to Krell, but he saw Archon, and he bowed quickly before him, knew who he was, knew who he served, even pr- professed his loyalty in ancient Nehekaran to sort of try to impress him and show him that he, you know, he knew the ancient tongue and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but Archon makes it very clear, this is Krell's army. You know, but the battle is likely to be decided as much by which side can raise more soldiers back as it was by the soldiers themselves. So you have an important job, but Krell's in charge. Don't don't get confused by this. It's his. This is his gig. And luckily, they knew that um, Tomb Kings don't have any cannons. That's why he was riding a terror ghost. No, oh. <laughs> that's true. They only have they only have their screaming skull catapults. Right. I like that, though. Big terror guys for your necromancer to fly around on. Raised stuff. Yep. Um, And I love the description of Helsnick in general. He was an outcast even by necromancer standards. This guy is centuries and centuries old. I mean, he's using his death magic to keep him alive as much as... In fact, there's one part where he gets tossed from the terror guys and, like, lands on the ground and is all broken and bent in places and just basically magics himself back together. Yeah. But... uh, yeah, and it says he has taken to some rather sick, sick methods of gaining more arcane knowledge. In fact, I do want to read this part. Um, his reverence for Archon and Nagash focused on what remained of his mind. But the ancient necromancer was already slipping, reverting back to the madman who had spent many hundreds of years poring over the same ancient tomes, greedily seeking to further secrets to prolong his unlife. As the centuries crept on, Helsnick resorted to ever more appalling and base methods of obtaining necromantic knowledge. Even before Krell's army advanced out of the marshes of madness, the Doomlord, Dieter Helsnick, had already consumed the brains of three of his fellow necromancers. So, So he's eating the brains of other necromancers to steal their knowledge. Okay, yeah, he wants uh, he wants more power. And the little story here is great with that necromancer Valsh, and he's going around and 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 trying to get through. And all of a sudden, Helsnick comes back. Oh, you're always behind. You're always behind. What are you doing? And he starts asking him how he, you know, what he's raising and what he's doing to keep keep the keep the keep the legions moving. And he's getting closer and closer. And this Valsh is getting kind of creeped out. And all of a sudden. Somebody else uh, shows up, and uh, wait, was it uh, at that moment? Necromancer Peter Dufree and another zombie formation emerged out of the thickets, catching the sight of newcomers. He went, back, he kicked his beast and took back to the size, mumbling something derogatory about peasant-filled Kislev. Uh, and then Vorsh thought again of his comrade Mortimer, the necromancer of Musilon. Somehow he'd been slain and his skull hollowed out. Now he trudged along as part of the nearby zombie regiment. Vols didn't know exactly what happened to his fellow mancer, but he was beginning to have his suspicions. <laughs> yeah, so he was gonna he was gonna eat this guy too. He like cause catching up and getting real close and getting all creepy with him, and someone else puffed out and he took off really fast. It's all kinds of wrong. Oh, it's gross. It's just really out there. I mean, man. So that's what's going on. Now we're going to get up to the uh, the battle for uh, for Blightwater with Krell's battle. Uh, you know what? Let's take a break and come back and discuss King Far and Krell's army. 
Hey folks, it's Dave. Are you looking for that special model to add to your army? A monstrous creature or maybe a character model? Something unusual that not everybody else is fielding on their table? Well, then you should check out Mears Miniatures at MearsMiniatures.com. Their Darklands line is full of some of the most fantastic creature models you'll ever see. And with the success of their recent Kickstarter, those models will be perfect for you to play in their forthcoming Darklands game. So whether you're looking for a new skirmish-level game to play with lots of cool monstrous creatures, or you're just looking for that extra special model to add to your existing games line, Mears Miniatures is really worth your time. Check them out at Mears-Miniatures.com, and seriously, guys, you'll be glad you did. Welcome back. Settling in for the Battle of Blightwater. Yes, we are. Krell's big battle. Um, and I like this. He gets to the river. And this, the river running through this river just destroys flesh. Living flesh disintegrates in this water. Um, so the living don't even touch it. They talk about how orcs and goblins who came through would ride through on uh, boats made of bone. If they had to, because they, they, if they knew, they couldn't touch the water. Uh, and Krell's like, uh, yeah, I don't even care about that. <laughs> like, once again, what's the worst that can happen? My zombies turn into skeletons. Um, I just picture like uh, Harry um, House and sending this as how I've got it pictured. Yeah. Like the skeletons from um, Jason and the Argonauts. Proper old school, you know, dodgy. CG. <laughs> I think that would, just, that would just look really cool. Yep. And now Krell gets there and he's like, um, how comes no one's protecting the river? That's what I would do. You know, it's just like, all right, they, yeah. it, he's like, he knows that the people he's going to fight aren't stupid, that these guys have been warriors for ages. He's like, something's going on. This is the point where they should be here and they're not. So he preps up his flyers to start running interference if anyone tries anything because he knows this, this most vulnerable moment is crossing this river. Uh, meanwhile, you got King Far, who's watching all of this. Uh, as soon as Krell's troops, the first one that sets foot on the other end of the river, they start getting hit with arrow shots and catapult shots. Um you know, bone giants are shooting their their bows. Uh, regular archers shooting their bows, and uh, Kell's forces are just Krell's forces are just kind of taking some heavy losses. And King Far's troops start advancing, so they're already taking losses before the troops actually get there. Um, so Krell first orders his flyers off, just go run interference, and his infantry starts moving forward. He's like, telling his necromancers, "Get these guys moving." So they start cranking through. Yeah. It's a get these guys moving on a several miles wide frontage. Jeez. It's crazy. It's a lot of lot of dead. Yeah. And uh it's it's just kinda cool because there's that whole thing in the strategy where he realizes if I can get there and get on, I can make a beachhead and I, I they're not gonna be able to get me off. But I gotta get across quick and I gotta get across before they get there. Um and then the flyers go over there, and it says uh, against a living battle force, they would be wreaking havoc. 
But against the yeah. undead, it just slows them down a bit because there's no panic checks, nothing to freak out about. It's just it doesn't affect them the way it would affect, uh, you know, living beings. Um, a terror geist gets into King Far's tomb guard uh, unit, killing a bunch of them. But again, it's not like they're going to run from this thing. They just fight it until it's dead and keep moving on. No, I like it because um, like just before that, Krell realizes that he's on the he's he's on the point where he can like hold where he is and retreat a bit and fight them to stalemate, or he can push on for the big win. And it's just like, right, I'm going to sacrifice all these flyers and go for it because that's the only way it works. So he's just like, yep, go go kill stuff. Yeah, <laughs> go make, turn arrows on you, and the the army can just advance then. Yeah, no, and, and and there's no yeah, like like you said, I remember reading that too, where I could he could wait and it, it would and you know, but he'd get stuck there for a long time. No, my job is to get to Camry. So yeah. I, I, you know, I, I've got a he's he's got a bet heavy to win heavy here because he's he's like I got to get across. If I don't get across now, I'm not going to make it to Camry. I'm going to be stuck here fighting too long. Um. So the flyers buy him time to get across the river. The first line's ready. The second line's coming out of the water. The third's coming in behind. He tells his necromancers to to buff all the troops that are under attack. And then he sends his Vargolfs and his cav units, both solid and ethereal, uh, up down the flanks. And then he finally goes with the Doomed Legion and crosses the river, too. Um now, I like the description of the Tomb King's armies, too. These were the loyal servants of King Far that were brought back to serve. The undead forces, you know, the, Krell's units are mindless machines. He says fight, and they sort of fight. You know, that's what they do. Uh, eventually, um, the Tomb King were much better fighters because a lot of them, especially as more legions, still had some memory, some, some semblance of who and what they were before they go. Like, they, you know... They they were willingly coming back, like waiting to be called back to serve in his yeah. armies. What was it? five legions of the Crimson Guard and a hundred the Sphinx Legion of Numas? It's a hundred men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost named legions as they were. And these guys are much better fighters than skeletons. Don't. Eventually, the infantry battle starts going into King Far's favor. Then, um, like I said, the Sphinx Legion shows up. Uh, then Prince. Uh, uh, what is it? Lamirach comes in on a war sphinx, just smashing stuff up. But again, the description is this thing is solid stone and this giant monstrosity just starts pummeling stuff. Yeah. Thunder crush. It, oh, exactly. So now King Far is like, oh, I got this. I got this. So he's getting his chariot legions ready um, and his high priest. Yeah, like he, he was about to leave early. Yeah. He's, I've got this, so I'm going to go and have a shower. You guys mop up. Yeah, I mean, he summons Amon Kaf, his high priest. He's like, okay, come on. I'm going to give you the last plan and get ready to go. Um, and then all of a sudden they start realizing that this darkness is not just darkness, that the necromancers are just outdoing the Tomb King uh, high priests by just leaps and bounds. They're just sucking this power right out of the air. Um, Krell's forces are going faster. Magic is coming out of clouds, and just, the magic is whipping out of the clouds and attacking, and cutting down ranks of tomb kings. Um, and as they're falling, the necromancers are raising them up to fight on Krell's side. 
Yeah, taking the souls out and, and making them just soulless skeletons. Yeah. Yeah, these guys die and their soul goes, yeah, before the before the uh, lich priest can put the souls back in them, he's just, not mine, <laughs> taking the body, mine. Uh, he gets off the edge of the river, he's moving forward, and that's it. Once that, that the Battle of Blightwater ends, he's off the river and pushing forward and crushing through, but the like, Battle of the Salt Plains has just get, begun. Yeah. Um. And then, like they, they talk about a little bit more how uh, King Far is readying his chariots and his cavalry because they're going to be more effective on this flat, dry land. He realizes that you know Krell's got him. Like he stops long enough to go, oh crap, he actually got through. Yeah. And he's like, okay, well we're going to move to the dry. So um, they charge, and some of them smash in the front ranks, and some go off to the side, and they're firing bows at Krell's forces. King Far is no dummy. He orders his units to find and kill all the necromancers. At all costs, they are the priority target. You know, just like in any game. Yeah, uh, yeah. kill the caster. Uh, after several hours of fighting, they killed off about a half a dozen of the necromancers. Um, two bone giants are shooting at Helsnick on the zombie dragon, and the thing crashes. And this, yeah, this is the part where he's hurt. He's literally mangled; like his leg is bending the wrong way. <laughs> but he's near Krell. So when he lands near Krell, he's like, oh, good, Krell's here. And Krell just makes sure nobody else touches him while he while he death magics his legs back together the right way. Um, but with the loss of a bunch of these necromancers and with Helsnick, you know, basically having to take care of himself for a little bit, then at this point, this is where the lich priests are able to sort of keep up with the their losses. And so yeah, the battle goes, yeah. Back to a stalemate. Now it becomes a war of wits and tactics. Where's this part that I wanted to read? Hold on. So began a new stage of battle, a match of wits and tactics, with Krell and King Far attacking and counterattacking at each other. The va- with Krell and King Far attacking and counterattacking each other across the vast salt plains of pawns, the utterly replaceable skeleton warriors. Both sides had plenty. Krell with his nameless hordes had the greater numbers, but his advantage came to naught upon the flat expanse, the fleet chariots and skeletal horsemen easily avoiding entrapment. Thus began a prolonged period of feints and ruses, broken occasionally by clashes of violent intensity. Gradually, Krell's army worked its way southward. So, yeah, this is where the two, the, these two you know, hardened generals are now you know, playing chess with one another. Yeah. I like I like the um, the chariots being used more in an ancient British kind of way, in the, the circling rather than just the crushing in. And I know that they would have done it in other cultures as well, but I, I like it. I think it's cool. And actually, if you read the Nagash series, they always did that. You know, their heavier chariots went right up the guts, and yeah. uh, everybody else fl- flew out to the sides and started picking off any anyone they can pick off. So it was pretty cool. But once again, we go back to that thing. All right, so I kill a bunch of guys. You kill a bunch of guys. I raise a bunch of them back. You raise, you know, whoever dies closest to my necromancers, I'm bringing back to fight. There's just no sense of someone's going to lose here. You know what I mean? I mean, unless one of the major characters dies, this is just a lot. Okay, and they fought some more, and they fought some more, and they brought it back, and they fought some more. 
I mean, unless something really cool gets killed, you know, when Helsnick lost his um, his Varg his um, Terrorgeist to the Bone Giant shots, I, that's kind of interesting, you know. But other than that, it's just a lot of I killed some skeletons, I brought some skeletons back. I killed some skeletons, I brought some skeletons back. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, that there's a certain yeah, there's less jeopardy. Yeah, in these kind of circumstances. Uh, let's see. All right, and then we get a bit here. Let's let's cover Manfred real quick again before we take another break. Now, Manfred was not a shambolic army, as they as he puts it. In fact, uh, once again, you got to you you got to love this because. Let's see. This was not a shambolic army assembled from troops summoned on the march, but a proud Sylvanian force that advanced beneath the infamous banner of the von Karsteins. Indeed, this was an army befitting the prestige of its leader, Manfred von Karstein. Dear Lord. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just love the pomp around it, you yeah, know? And yeah, that's um, brilliant. The only thing is he does love his creatures of the night. So, you know, in the army, little watercolor section, you've got the acolytes, you've got the knights, you've got Helmet's Own and the Drakenhof Guard, and then just loads of creatures of the night. Yeah, he does. He's the one, it's, it's, in fact, yeah, when you read the stories, he's the one that's always got tons of wolves and bats with him. Yeah. You don't see Vlad doing that. That's a, that's a Manfred thing. Um, and I love this. He's going through and he's just battering all the little minor defenses. Every you know every minor outpost he goes he just smashes and raises them and brings them with him, uh, but he's all mopey. I just found this hysterical. Did you like? He's just whining, he, you know. He's far from his domain. He's serving Nagash. I have to play my part and await my opportunity. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm not, why am I here? I should be in Sylvania. I guess I have to do this, but I'm just waiting, waiting for my moment. I'm just, your moment to do what? Like, what exactly are you going to do? And I just I keep asking myself. Well, you know, there's 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 uh, obviously Nogash is going to have to do something to regain his power. Maybe he can subvert that. But as we we, we kind of said last time, no vampire loves um, likes being told what to do or anything like that. So oh no, they're all alpha creatures. So nobody wa- you know. So no matter what happens, they're always looking for some way to improve their own station. Um, unless, you know, the only place they want to be is on top. Unless they found a comfortable place at home, like some of, some of Manfred's lesser vampire mm. servants. They remember, well, I mean, in the beginning, they didn't know why he wanted to, like, hey, you, you put us under perfect darkness. We could do what we want. I mean, they're on top, but they're very happy to be on top in a tiny, tiny <clears throat> pond. No. Right, they're happy to have food and whatever there, but each of them is looking to improve their station, and you'll see it in the in the in the novels more. Ah, okay. It, they might not be they might not be aiming at Manfred, but they're aiming at the guy above them. Oh, okay. And eventually, they you know if they keep rising, they'll be aiming at Manfred. Interesting. I gotta I gotta get to that book. I've still got. I've got Battle for the Abyss, and, and I want to I want to read Gotrek and Felix so incredibly bad, but uh. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, even just like uh, when what's his name was put in charge of the Drakenhof Knights, it was like, why is he in charge? Why is he in charge? I should be in charge, and you know that was kicking off, 
and then someone else is looking at them going, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the Drakenhof being the leader of the Drakenhof means nothing compared to, you know, ruling Sylvania, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, they, whichever kind of station they're at, they're always looking for more. Okay. Oh. Well, I, I'm interested to read that part then. Um, oh, to get back to Manfred being all broody, he doesn't trust anybody, and least of all Archon. He's sitting there, he's like seething with his resentment, and he's completely awed by the power it took to cover Nehekara and darkness. When, um, yeah, just before you go anywhere, someone said on Twitter, actually, um, I think it might have been Brad, was, uh, uh, you know, people keep getting confused between Archon and Archaon. And someone responded, well, it only seems to be Americans that call him Archon. Yeah, I, I call him Archaon. No. Yeah, Archaon and uh, Archaon. Well, yeah, it's Archon. Well, I call him Archon, but I guess it's Ar- Archan. Is that what? I, I think I think that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, Archan. I, I often say Archaon. Nagash. So I mean, I just I always have the ah sound in it. It just seems Nehekara. It seems like a a lot of ah sounds to me. So I'm like the only one yeah. I ever hear who says Nagash. So I might be retarded, but I was just saying. I was just thought it might be worth. No, it's no, it's no, it's Big Mike who said it. Yeah, Mike Hackstad was, was saying he's listening, and some people are saying, "Yeah," Ar- but even Archon and Archaon. I mean, that's so okay, different. Two very yeah. different words. Yeah. So yeah. So yes. Uh, so let's see. He's all upset. He's really in- impressed with power. And Manfred, and I always said that this part cracked me up. Manfred understood it, though. He, he understood Nagash. He understood the desire to reclaim a throne long denied him. It's like, dude, that's not what Nagash wants at all anymore. You don't. You understand Nagash like 5,000 years ago. Yeah, exactly. This is the new and improved Nagash. But yeah, I, I get him. He wants his throne. Hey, he wants his country back. I totally get that. Well, even if he did just want his throne back, it's, he's still just like trying to compare himself to Nagash. It's like, yeah, me and him, we're not so different. <laughs> And yeah, he just doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't quite get it as he's going through, it, or he, he's denying it himself because he doesn't want to get it. Yeah, he wants to play a lead role in the Gash's army, though. He really wants to have a lead part, only because that's the game. the The, the game now is who can be number one. Nagash is most most faithful and most useful, and he's got to play the game. Well, you never know if he can get his hand on, you know, a new fell blade. Yeah, possibly. So, you know, yeah, but you've got to be in position to do it. So, And basically he's sitting here thinking that once once, once Nagash has Nehekara, you know, oh, we'll be done. He'll have his tone. We can go home. I can go home and focus on securing Sylvania and uh, dealing with Vlad. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, i got to help him. Once I help him get his home, then maybe he'll leave me alone. You know, once he's got what he wants. Um. Paul Manfred. Yeah, and here's the point where he's thinking about this constantly and not paying attention to his surroundings. Doesn't even yep. notice that his bats and wolves are all gone. Yeah, schoolboy. Yeah, he basically, and I mean, he's mentally, you know, linked to this stuff, but he's so distracted he doesn't realize they've gone silent. Uh, he doesn't notice the shifting sands. I like how I said someone born of the desert would notice this right away, but if not, maybe not. Um, there's no scouts left. Sand scorpions and whatnot killed them all. If he'd been ta- paying attention, he might have noticed this, but no, he's busy brooding. Uh, 
So suddenly the desert erupts. Skeletons are dying left and right. Uh, the sepulchral stalkers are up there doing stuff. Um, I love that the sepulchral stalkers are just gazing at the units and they turn them into sand. Uh, in fact, Helmet, who's one of his most trusted acolytes, he averts. He met, he sees what's happening. He averts his eyes and starts killing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's one of those rules that that's what they do in game. But because people don't use them, and because people just read, kind of, what do I need to wound? Right. <laughs> like the description gets lost, but that's why they're good against the low initiative stuff. Yeah, they jump out, and all that stuff turns to sand. So he's destroying them. Uh, King Behadesh. I mean, he's been there in the sand for months. Yep, been waiting. Yep. And then one last bit here. I love. Uh, Manfred chose his lieutenants, and now he chose this little this little sidebar here, where he, you know, with the bits of the story, you know, he chose his lieutenants carefully, and uh, he chose none of his direct get. He knew them too well. He recruited Helmet of von Karstein, Krakwald, a scion of Aberesh, and von Grecht. And uh, von Grecht had that scarab thing with him. And uh, he asks him about it, and his reaction to the basically, oh, there's the spy. It wouldn't be Neferata spies. That would be a really hot chick. So he's like, ah, I know what this is going to be. It wouldn't be Neferata spies because it wouldn't be that obvious. Yeah. So he's like, it must be Archon. And uh, yeah, he didn't know if he should. So he's basically, you know, planning to set. He's planning to set a trap for a trap for him when that's when all hell breaks loose. And, uh, and he's doing that because every vampire is playing the game. Yep. It's it's kind of like, this is all still happening with the sepulchral stalkers coming up, causing all kinds of problems. Right. And um, was it Manfred could bear it no longer, drawing his blade and spurring his mount. He rode straight at the nearest foe. He's got angry. Oh, that's right. That's right. <clears throat> he just, uh, just runs in and kills one, brings stuff back. It's like, ah, I better be helping here. Right. Where are we? Oh, man. I'm looking for my notes for this. It looks um, like two, I lost... Four, 240. Right. Okay, hold on. Give me just one second here. No okay, you know what? I'm just missing like one page of my notes. So this I have to take right out of the book. So this I might slow me down a bit. No um yeah, this is yeah. They're getting killed. Yeah, Manfred rushes forward. He's mad, and I love his three vampires. Uh, Von Grecht is using his necromancy to bring back entire regiments. Uh, Krakwald, I look. Krakwald just snaps. He like loses. He fails his frenzy check, uh, and he just goes after. He it says he he he's overcome with the red fury, and so he's in there and uh, just leads the Knights of the Red Death straight forward. These were blood knights, the pinnacle of heavy cav, and he just goes through rank after rank after rank, smashing them, and it's like, oh, he's doing really good. But then uh, they smash through to the backside, turn around for another quiz, but now they're kind of out in the open, and this is when King Behadesh's lich priests see them. And this is cool. He just, th- this is right out of the mummy, too. Like, it's a lone figure. There's one little priest out there with his scroll out. Yeah. Reading it. And then all these scorpions just burst out. 
scorpions and beetles, all like not not yeah. not big sand scorpion constructs, but literal little scorpions and beetles all come out. They get in between the chinks in the armor and they just eat them. Lovely. And that's it. All these blood knights are gone. Poof. Bye. An ignominious end for the peak of martial prowess from the north. See, frenzy it always gets you into trouble. Absolutely. So they're fighting on for hours. No one can get the advantage again. Uh, it's enormous sweeping curve with the king's regiments on the far side of the arc enveloping the army of Sylvania. Uh, the magic of the vampires kept their own lines from breaking. It's going back and forth. Um, there can only be one outcome, though. The vampires are just... Uh, they, Manfred got played. I mean, yeah. it, literally, if you're, picture, if you're picturing this on the game board... You set up your army in the dead center, and they set up their army in a circle around you. Uh, I mean, he's just, he's stuck. So he's hes formulating an escape plan while he's watching this, as opposed to a battle plan. Yeah, yeah. And he's the only one that's giving them time to actually have an escape plan. Right. He's, he's everywhere that he needs to be, killing Ushabti, killing loads of other stuff. Yep. So Krakvald is dead. So he's still got Helmet and Von Grecht. So him, Helmet, and but whatever units he could grab, his reserve units, he manages to find them a way outside of the battle. Uh, yep. And he basically leaves Von Grecht in there fighting to, you know, if he survives, great. But, you know, he's basically the guy who's distracting them so Manfred could get away. Uh I, what else happens? I like this part. Or he's just, he's moving like full speed. He's just like, run, run, run. Every once in a while they got to stop because they get caught up too. And they got to fight him in the rear, his rear attack, uh, fight off an attack, and then just keep running um, until they get to the river. And then he thinks he's really screwed. He could try cross. I love, he, he gets to the river and he's like, well, there's me and there's a helmet. And there's some of our troops. You know what? We're done. I don't think we're going to Kemri. I think we're leaving. Look, he actually plans on just calling it quits right here. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then these flat bottom barges, these Kemrian barges appear as well. Yeah, and they, they got, uh, they're on the nearby shore disgorging troops in a rising clatter of bone and bronze. And he's like, oh, crap. Um, this little side story on here is really good, too, with Helmet. I hope I hope Helmut comes into this story a little bit more. Oh, that's right, he does, but not too much more. Uh, but I was, you know, that that, that pisses me off because they were making me really interested in this guy. I was starting to like this guy. <laughs> you know, cause I don't think Von Grecht made it, and Manfred didn't go anything. And he smiled. No, I tried to reach him in the melee, but he was too surrounded. There's still hope he could get free, although I admit it's not likely. Uh, and he looks at him, my lord, I assume Von Grecht was positioned so deeply within our lines because you believed he was informing on you. And Manfred smiles. And I like this. It was well done, he reflected. In the current situation, there's no denying the lesser vampire was a necessary element to the survival of the force. But by confiding something of what he knew regarding his former comrade, he not only demonstrated a greater level of cunning than Manfred had suspected, but was extending what was at once an offering of trust and a politely couched warning he would not be so easily dealt with. So yeah. I, I just I really liked that uh mix, that take on it where you know, he's got someone with him who he doesn't like anyone with him who's too clever because you don't want to get you don't want to get a, a knife in the back. 
but this guy's proven himself to be pretty, you know, pretty formidable at least, pretty okay. Yeah. So, uh, you want to take a quick break here and then come back uh, and see what's going on with the uh, with the Dreadfleet? Yeah, why not? All right, cool. Quick break. We'll be back. Welcome, cousin. I've been waiting for you, said Kalita, cold steel in her voice. Neferata instinctively bared her fangs and hissed, then, with an effort, forced a smile. Which of my handmaidens talked? Was it Annalisa? Now it was Kalita's turn to feign warmth, though her mask rendered her hauntingly expressionless. I asked her many questions. Her name was not one of them. Neferata understood. It was to be a duel, just the two of them. I'm afraid I didn't bring the ceremonial blades this time, cousin. Did you? Kalita advanced, her movements lithe and graceful. She assumed the stance of an honor duel, raising her weapons, a snake staff and a bone claw gauntlet. Nefrata's aristocratic features sharpened as she drew forth a pair of blades and assumed her stance. It never had to be this way, cousin, said the Eternal Queen. No, answered Kalita. It always had to be this way. back and uh we're, we're, we're we got some of the some of the naval battles okay uh, was this was this remotely exciting to you um i'm trying to remember now okay apparently not if it's not that memorable uh, it was um it was like maybe it just went on a bit too long yeah I mean, it's, it's, this is the trouble I'm running in, and I, and I at first I thought maybe I was running out of steam because it's a 300-page book, and man, are there a lot of battles described in this book. But uh, yeah. I don't think it was the battles. I think it's just it's. I, I, it comes back to the undead, you know, mirror mirror matches with undead. Um, yeah, it's it's just that that gr- it's it's all a grind it's always a grind until something really cool happens the really cool thing is great but the rest think, of it is um, such a grind maybe tolkien handled it better with his arrival of dead people on ships yeah trying to just let it happen and then bring him off and then just leave people oh so you obviously killed all of those people then well and his battles were a little different though too cuz his battles were always on a, on a, actually Seemingly much smaller scale. He never got into this much detail with this much, these many, you know. It's, it's a different book. I just, I don't know if this story needed telling quite the same way. Um, you know, if if you ended that last chapter, but then had cutting to another battle and like Manfred on the boats. Because yeah. you could have you left it um, wondering like, oh my goodness, what's happened to Manfred? And then have boats appearing further down the river, you know. Yeah. Kemri boats. And then have Manfred get off. Ah. But so, oh yeah, and how'd you get here? Then they get you a little yeah. bit of a then flashback. A little bit there, but just leave it as a bit more of a surprise. I mean, people will probably guess it, but. Yeah, I mean, so the Nehekaran fleet is sitting there and Harkon is there. 
Luther Harkin, he's moving forward. Um, he's got tons of zombies on the boats, you know, and he knows he's got to get some of them off. He doesn't want to be too crowded down when they actually get into fighting. He's like, how much farther up should I go before I dump the cargo? Because if he gets if he if if he gets into a battle and he I mean it said they're low in the water because of all the zombies on the boats, it's going to actually hinder him from fighting. So he can't quite decide. Finally, he's like, you know what? Screw it. We're as far as we're going to go. And he starts dumping them off. And at that point, um, that's uh, what is it? Who who finds him um, on the ship? Oh, King Calazar. Mm, yeah. You know. Um, you know, he starts hearing the the warnings and the bells going, and uh, as this is happening, he's like, "Oh, the ships are coming!" So he starts ordering his troops all on the deck. The skeleton warriors are standing there, ready to fire. The archers. He's got all those people out there. He knows he's got some stuff out on on the on the shore. So whatever comes, whatever starts coming in, he's going to be ready for it. Um. Harp, Harkin opened the hostilities by firing Queen Bess, a Hellhammer cannon that took up most of the Black Coffin's middle deck. Yeah, this um, from Man of War. I'm I'm pretty sure it's called a Hellhammer cannon, and it was literally a ship almost as big as the other, like you know frigates, and three quarters of it was just a cannon, and you actually moved the ship backwards when you fired it. Oh wow! Yeah. So I think this is a little nod back to that. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and it does say the shot screamed across the water before hitting the claws of Osirian, uh, splintering bone and sending petrified timbers spinning hundreds of feet into the air. Hundreds of feet into the air. The Great War Bard sank in moments, taking hundreds of warriors and crew to the bottom. So that cannon is a hell of a thing. Yes. So he fires that and fires a whole bunch of others then. So they're shooting all over the place, and the Cambrian ships are just waiting until he gets close enough for them to fire. They're nearly in range, and uh, the cannonades are firing, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get him. And it's so funny. The king's like, those. he's got all those. He, he's basically got uh, screaming skull catapults on yeah. the... Uh, out on the um, on, sure. on the shore, waiting to just take uh, take some shots at at him, and they don't they don't start firing. He's like, oh, "What the hell?" And that's because Harkin dumped his crew a long time ago, and he's got them coming up on land as well. So with all those guys coming up on land, and him just firing on his own, so he's like, "Oh, well, then fire everything else." Um, I did like. This part, uh, he has his secret weapon. Uh, it was, how did he describe it? It had taken decades to procure and had cost Harkin many zombies. Some dozen ships in his fleet carried them out from storage in barrels of salt. In barrels of salt water came the enormous bladders, slimy things filled with liquid carefully extracted from inside the enormous reptiles that Voyager's Telustria named salamanders. It need only be squeezed into the air to catch flame. So, he's Name been, one, baby. Yeah, he's been catching and extracting the stuff that the salamanders spit, the flame spit. Yeah. 
and he's got up there. So the zombies loaded up, and they squeeze this liquid out, and it just shoots out in the air and catches fire. Um, so the Tomb King barges are starting to burn, and some are some of, some of Harkin's ships are burning because there's sometimes mishaps. They are zombies; they screw things up. Uh, but the benefit is that his wood was all soggy and rotten and kept together with necromancy, and it didn't burn very well. And theirs is all dry. Yeah. Although it did split catastrophically when it was rammed by the burning ships. So next thing you know, they're getting up close. They're shooting grappling hooks out towards each other, locking the ships together. Skeletons are going across and fighting. Uh, The ships are burning, and the battle goes on two full days. And then Harkin turns out the winner. Da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, um, I think it's quite nice to have a slightly different um, battle. But, yeah. It's I mean, a little... And it mentions Mortis Sharks. Yeah, what the hell was that? Uh, undead Sharks. <laughs> Why can't you raise a shark? I suppose you could. You could raise anything. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> undead Sharks in the water. Oh, man. I mean, like I said, the, the giant cannon was cool. The bringing the salamander juice out was cool. But other than that, you know what it is? It's um, when, I'm, when I met Larry Correa, the author for Monster Hunter International and the Grimnor Chronicles, I met him at Gen Con this year. He was, right. he was, they were giving a talk on writing books, and he says, the two biggest problems, and he goes, you always ask people about this, is it either boring or confusing? Because if it's either of those two things, you're doing something wrong. This was a bit confusing in parts. Like, I wasn't certain what was going on, and it was a bit boring, I thought. Like, it was a, it was a big naval battle. It, it should have been exciting. And it was like, I fired this, he fired that, and then skeletons killed skeletons until somebody won. And then, basically, he sends his guys out and says, go start, uh, send out the zombies and the skeletons and have them start salvaging all the boats that sunk to the bottom of the river. Let's pull them out and see how much of it we can fix. I, I, I'm, I prefer them doing the way they did it to trying to make the a big naval battle cool because that would have taken a lot of pages. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to do. It was just, it's like you said, it, it, it almost could have been. At the end of the day, it would always come down to firing a few cannons and then ramming each other. And it's more undead versus fighting undead. So, Yeah. It's just. It, for me, uh, it just this didn't satisfy any real, you know, need on me for what I was reading. Uh, in fact, the only thing it served really was to set up this next scene. Yeah. So as you know, as I was saying, those two pages could have been done in one paragraph, kind of at yeah. the start of the next bit. Yeah. But, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, because basically Manfred's been running again. He's on top of the ruins of a temple. Oh, it's a temple to Ulatip, Ula or I don't know. It's U-A-L-A-T-P. How do you pronounce T-N-P? I don't know. But it's the vulture god of scavengers. Yeah. Yeah, he's making his last stand. Yeah. Because he, he's getting assailed from the sea as well. This is the most defensible spot he can find. He runs. He sees those boats unloading. He doesn't even engage him. He's just like, oh, crap, I can't go there. So I'm stuck here. Yeah. Um, Like Tremors. 
he knows that they can't burrow underneath the rock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, he's Kevin Bacon in it up. There you go. Hey, Kevin Bacon in Warhammer. He is truly in everything. Of course he is, yeah. So uh, Manfred reaches out, summons all the skeletons, all the spirits in the area. He pulls everything. And there are spirits. He's got, like, uh, banshees and uh, what the Cairn Wraiths yeah. pulled out. King Behadesh and his Cav unit and all of his understand creatures, he sends those ahead, sends off his Cav unit, his light Cav and his sand creatures. He's got Manfred penned in. If he tries to make a run for it, he's not getting away. Uh, but his scouts report that ships are disembarking at uh, Fair Oaks Landing, and that's in his domain. And he's like, Wait, who the heck is in my territory unloading ships? And the scouts are like, oh, and they ain't ours. So he's like, what is going on? And it's that's it's Luther Harkin. He spent the last two weeks, his troops had been repairing and salvaging ships, and now he's back to over 150 ships. Yeah, that's quite a... And that's still not as big as his fleet was when he came in. So that was a, it, that was that was an enormous battle. I mean, that was a huge battle. I, did, I honestly, until they told me how many ships here, I had no idea the sense of scope of that battle. No, that's that's one thing they maybe didn't get quite across. See, I'm really glad they didn't go into detail about it. Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't need to describe all. But they, I mean, they could have. I mean, it might have seemed a little more exciting if you're telling me 200 ships were firing back and forth and things were blowing up. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what would have worked, but I, it just didn't. I didn't get the feeling that it was this much. Um, and they'd moved down river, stopping to ransack temples for treasure because that's hey, he's a pirate. Exactly. I mean, his ships were low in the water; they were full of zombies. Hey, they were only docked there because they were looking for treasure. And then Decla spots the Tomb Kings. Goes, hey, they got guys over there. Um, and so they decide, well, we best kill them. Um, and it's funny because the king's like, why aren't these two fighting together? Why are they over on the land and these guys over here? So he's like, well, I don't want them to join two forces because if they join forces, I might be in trouble. So he actually splits his army to go after both. Probably a mistake. Yeah. but um, And I like it. Now, Manfred's at the top of this temple. On the north side, the skeletons could go ten wide. On the south side path, they could go five wide. And this is great for Manfred because they can't, he can't come at him with legion after legion after, I mean, he can, but they, they're, he's, they basically, yeah. they got to come up 10 at a time. In this one, Manfred's got the elite warriors. Yeah. So he wants a nice crowded, uh, the squeezed areas of attack. Right. So he can't bring his full force to bear on him. So uh, Manfred summons, and they were the vulture priests. So these are the spirits of the priests of this vulture god. Yeah. And now they're a bunch of wraiths. And so he sends them up on the one side. And then on the north side, he's got, uh, you know, Behadesh has 10 regiments of 50 warriors just chopping their way up. Manfred knows he's trapped because he, and he's not even like, I could hold out here forever. He's like, no, nah, once the Necrosphinxes catch up or the catapults catch up, then I'm done for because they will just blow up the temple. Yeah, I mean, they don't have to come up those stairs. They could just blow the place up. So he's like, oh, crap. And then he hears guns, like actual black powder weapons. He's like, that's not Cambrian weaponry. 
and then he sees Luther Harkin's forces. They're under attack, too. He summons creatures of the night, because that's what Manfred has. And uh, here he summons them, and they're all like crap creatures. They're not like the bats and stuff he likes. This is just like the stuff in the, the vultures and stuff from the desert. <laughs> so he's like, ugh, got to summon this? This is what you got? And he sends him out to tell Harkin, I'm here. Tell Tell him I need help. That must, oh, that has to gall him. Oh, yeah, big tone. To ask for help. Um, so, Behadesh, he's fighting this two from, he's personally taking care of Manfred. He doesn't know it's Manfred, but he knows it's a powerful vampire. He's going to bring the head of this vampire to Setra. So, he's sending his second in command, King Nemetum, to try and bust through the zombie beachhead. And stop the rest of the fleet from disembarking. Good luck with that. Yes. Uh, and Bahadesh is pissed. He's lost three legions to the wraiths on the south path. Uh, the north is making progress, but slow, but it's still making progress. They can't get up through that stuff on the south. So he heads to the south personally. And he's got uh, he's got a, a magic sword and his tomb guard, which he kept calling the, his eternal guard. And isn't that what they call... Uh, the wood elf troops. Right. To- Guard in the game, yeah. So I, at first, I mean, I realized they were called the Eternal Guard. For, it, it was just the name of that lead, that little legion. But I had, I actually scratched out my notes and wrote Tomb Guard because I'm like, I'm confusing myself. No. <laughs> uh, some of his troops died, but his sword was that was it. He had a he he had a magical weapon. So the ethereal they did magical. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love when the game rule stuff comes into play here. It's like, oh, he's got a magic weapon. Those guys are in trouble. Um, and I love this part. Manfred and Helmet, they're fighting the remaining skeletons in the north, but now the south is starting to fail, and they're like, oh, crap, we're screwed. And all of a sudden, bats come out of nowhere, and they're attacking the Tomb Kings. And then this huge thing flies in, and it's this huge wings comes flying in and starts taking stuff out, and it's Harkin. He, he grew wings. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, dude, I didn't know vampires could grow their own wings. Like, I mean, I, I at least in the game, I you know, it's like, oh, dude, he can grow wings. But there's a vampiric power that gives you flight. That's true, and I guess you would need it all the time. No one else takes it anymore. <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, but yeah, you know, and and actually, as the as vampires devolve and they give into the beast, they turn into vargeists and things like that. And there's no reason why you can't turn into a winged version of something like that. That was really cool, though, because that is not what I was expecting. Like, he's like a big winged thing. I'm like, did he have a terrorgeist or something with him? No. Nope, he, it's yeah. him. Flew over and, uh, and spotted this little lone wizard reading a scroll. He's unguarded in the back, just standing back there. And how does he kill him? Does he cut off his head? Darn right he does. Everybody take a drink. It's another decapitation. Uh, at, least, at least you know they're probably dead when you decapitate them. Probably, yeah, because somebody else gets decapitated in here, and I don't think that they wound up very dead. I was like, wait, what? But uh, so they can't regrow troops anymore, so that's it. I mean, now he's now his eternal guard get killed, and they're all dead. The uh, So it, there it is, top of the temple, King Behadesh and Manfred. Fighting it out, mano a mano, um, and Benedict cuts through Manfred's armor and like through his chest. 
like down through the bone. Like Manfred's screwed here. Uh, Manfred managed to put down several little light blows and knocks off the king's helmet. But, dude, when he hits him, cuts right through his chest plate and through his ribs. And this is the part where he's about to win. He raises his blade, and then in the movie moment, uh, a sword pops out from his chest. Uh, Helmet popped up behind him, stabbed him in the back, gives it a nice twist right through the heart, and then rips it out, killing one of the last kings of Zandri. Um, Probably he was gaining more prestige and a higher place in vampire society. I forgot about the curse. Or didn't know about the curse, because, dude, I forgot yeah. about the curse. <laughs> and, you know, it's nice to see it come into play, though, because in the game, isn't the... It, uh, I mean, it's it's it, it could do something, but sometimes does nothing. And uh, here, I don't remember now, it's because it's changed, but I've had it kill one of my characters not too long ago. But isn't it because, like, D6 wounds or something like that, so it could just do one? Uh, you yeah, know? it's... Um, it's a decent strength, I think. But yeah, right. I've had it kill characters. But here, his body erupts into a swarm of Kepra beetles that cover up Helmet and eat him. Yes. So like, Oof! You killed him, and then he kills you back. And that, dude, that's totally crazy. And, and Manfred's only alive because the Tomb King curse goes against Helmet, who landed the killing blow, instead of Manfred. I mean, it could have been that that blow just slowed him down long enough for Manfred to chop his head off. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you don't know if that curse would have affected Manfred as much because he's a bit more powerful. But, but boop, there it goes. Manfred lives. That king's dead. And uh, here we go along. Where are we now? Oh, yeah. And then, okay, now we're up to the Neferata part. Um, Neferata's chapter is pretty cool. Yeah. Do you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a quick break, and we'll talk a little bit about Neferata. Hey folks, it's Dave, and I wanted to talk to you for a minute about Battle Foam. You've all heard me talk about it before. The foam is firm, it doesn't separate from the base, they custom cut, design, make any piece of foam you want to fit any model you want. Anytime a new army comes out, within days, you've got Battle Foam cut and designed to fit those models. This isn't a game company making cases on the side. This is a carrying case company making foam and custom carrying cases to protect your army. It's what they do. It's all they do. Check it out at BattleFoam.com. Battle Foam, protecting your army. To Neferata's uh, escapades. <laughs> yeah. So she's in Lamia. Now, I, I kind of liked this beginning part. This is like a, one of those you can't go home again moments. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like she gets there and she's like dreamed of revenge on these people since she left. She's been recreating this place since she left. I mean, it even says how. You know, uh, the 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 place she made where she was sitting up there was, you know, supposed to look 
like her former palace. And now yeah. she's here and she's like, she just wants to level the place. She destroys the stone sentries on the outside. Um, I like how she realized that half the glyphs around this place are keeping things in, not out. You know, some of the things that got trashed here when they burned down Lamia are still here and yeah. looking for revenge. <laughs> but, um, you know, she sort of gets there and looks around and it's like, there's, there, there, I think it comes up later and she's like almost sad. She's just like, I wanted to come back to this place so bad and now that I'm here, I just don't ever want to be here again. No, that's it. Yeah. So, of course, Kalita's waiting for her. Uh, and once she knows Neferata's there, she starts moving in. And she takes everything uh, from Libaris and heads out. I mean, everything goes with. She's not holding anything back. No. Um, dude, did, did, where did where the hell did she get uh, one of the slants palanquins or palanquins, if that's what you want to call it? But... Um, you know, the floating little dais that the thing rides on? How the hell did she get one of those? Do we know it's a Slans one? She said it was, well, she said it was from, it says that it was from um, Lustria. Who else floats around in those things? Yeah, well, um, well, you know, it's the, the Kemri race is thousands and thousands of years old. If they haven't killed a Slan in their time, then no one has. Well, I, so, yeah. You know, and if you read um, the Gash, they talk about some of the tribes that are coming into Kemri. Like some have been over to Cathay and Ind, and they come back with the boomsticks. Oh, yeah. And have been to the south and come back with the lizards who don't work very well in the heat. Oh, that's right. I remember reading that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Because they're the lizards. That's right. They got the st- and they all had the what the dragon's breath weapons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So she's riding out on one of these floating, you know, salon uh, things. Um, her little herald, Prince Nefhotep, is there. and He's got the sacred totem of the city. She's got archers. Uh, the You know, the, oh, everyone's got fancy names. Um, she goes to the Legion of Fakth, P-H-A-K-T-H, I can't, the raptor god. Yeah, that would do. Um Maybe fox, like a like a like a hawk or something like that. Who knows? They yeah. leave their posts. She invokes the oath of unforgivable wrongs. That's kind of cool. <laughs> this this has to be fixed. You got to come with. Uh, she's got necropolis knights. She's got all sorts of stuff. Um, and then she's not alone. She's got Prince Sechineb with his ch- army of chariots. King Hosep, uh, her lord of war, is on the Necrosphinx. These guys have been around since, like, the first dynasty. Yeah. There's some old dudes there. Yeah. Uh, It's funny. Her her lord of war says, we should do what Cetra tells us. And she's like, you know what? To hell with that. I'm going there. And he sort of gives her lip. (laughs) What did you just say? Typical woman not doing as she's told. (laughs) Oh, boy. I don't know how many female listeners we have, but send all your complaints to greg at garagehammer.net. So, I'm single. I can say that. You're going to stay single. You keep saying that. <laughs> I'll save you some money. That's fine. You never heard that joke? That's an old Robin Harris joke. Yeah. He's like, I got married. The first day we got home, I took off my pants, threw them at my wife, said, put on these pants. She says, you know, I can't fit in your pants. She goes, now you know who wear the pants in the family. 
And he goes, she did him one better. She took, her, took off her pants, threw them at him, and said, you put these pants on. And he said, woman, you know I can't get in these pants. And she said, you never will. You don't change that attitude. Hey. <laughs> so there we go. There's my there's my stupid joke for the for the day because I only tell one uh, to you know, but mm. uh, let's get back to this I guess. Um, yeah, hi, uh, high king Tharuk and uh, of Morocco's with her. Um, him and his whole family hate Neferata because I guess she killed some of his sons or something like that. Only a third of his warriors go with. Like he doesn't have the loyalty of his city as like like Kalida does. One third go with him. One third go. Where Setra told him to go, and one third are like, "We're just gonna stay here and watch the city." Yeah, that seemed a bit interesting first time around. Yeah, <laughs> just like, yeah, we're not leaving. <laughs> and like, I guess they seemed uh, like weaklings, but then uh, the mo- the mortuary cult won't go either, except for one guy, Kufta, and he gets mm. told not to go, and he's like, "No, I'm loyal to Tharik," and he goes. Uh, and Neferaz is watching all of this. I love it. She's got her little scrying pool. Because you know what? That coven throne plays a big part in, in everything. Wherever she's there, the coven throne is there. Say what you want about that thing, but I love it. And in the fluff, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Her little big bowl of blood actually counts for something. Like, she's you know she's actually watching what's going on. Like the Wicked Witch of the West watching in her little cauldron. Definitely. What's going on. So, uh... We get the battle for Lamia. Um, I love this description. The very beginning. Um, let's see. This is paragraph one. Okay. Armies of Libaris and Maharak passed the boundary obelisks and entered into the lands once ruled by Lamia. The stone markers were now adorned with skull faces and leering images of death. Here the darkness seemed to hang more thickly. For thousands of years, few had passed near the tainted ruins of Lamia, and fewer still returned from their journey. It was an evil place where the spirits of the damned still prowled. It's like, oh, okay. So there's your description. Pretty ruined place. Yeah, it's like a burnt-out shell. You know, Kalita's looking around at all of this, and, uh, you know, I guess they burnt it down to make sure they got all the vampires, except Neferata got away. Hmm. Not just her. Oh, yeah, several guys. I love how they form up this line and sweep forward through the city. Like, it's all trashed, so we're just going to go through it. Uh, let's see. you got Kalida, Hasep, and Tharuk. They form a line. And this is like Archon's tactics. Hasep's on the right. Tharuk's on the left. Kalida's in the center. Line up. Move forward. Smash anything in our way. That Remember when Archon was talking about how he preferred Lamian's tactics? He's tried everybody's tactics. But the uh, not Lamy second the the Nehekaran tactics. Yeah. I'll just put put everything at their toughest thing and smash it. It's pretty simple. Yeah. So they got all these ruins and uh ancient banners. She sees the ancient banners of Lamia when she's attacked. And behind them the skeleton hordes. Uh she sees that that banner of Neferata flying and she trips out. Where is it here? Um, where is it? Oh, here. Upon sighting those hated symbols, a shockwave ran through the legions of Nehekara. Although they expected to find one that had def- find the one that had defiled Lamia, and had marched out of from their cities for the very purpose of confronting her, 
Seeing the banner of Neferata raised once more in the city, she had corrupted, had an alarming effect. Kalida's hatred flared uncontrollably. How could she dare? With rage in his voice, King Hasep called out for the vampire queen, bidding her to come forth and receive her due. And, uh, yeah, she was like, yeah, forget forget it. <laughs> She's not fighting. She's setting forth her skeleton legions. Uh, you know, Kalida just has all her archers start firing. Uh, Tharuk just basically frenzies, like just charges into them with his chariots. He sees the banners. Man, they're really pissed. Oh, yeah. You think after a few thousand years, you know, you'd at least come to grips with it. But these, uh, these people got issues. They're living like that because of people like that. They're living in the destruction wrought by these kind of people. So <laughs> he charges forward, leaves his tomb guard behind, and he's killing stuff. But then they stall because they got the chariots and they can only go so far through so much before they're not knocking mm-hmm. things out of the way. Uh, and they're almost getting killed. Like they start getting surrounded, but the tomb guard finally catch up, and they're 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 smashing. King Hasep's in the fight with his uh, war sphinx, but he's not that frenzied. He's watching everything, and his and the prince and his chariots are sort of waiting to see what happens. They fight for two days on and off, and then it becomes like a week long stalemate. Because guess what? The dead don't need to eat or sleep. Did we mention that, by the way? They can just fight. They don't need to eat or sleep. Did that get mentioned in the chapter yet? They don't need to eat or sleep. Yeah, that's that's always going to be a common. I know. And it's not a complaint. I mean, I get it. It's just, once again, this just keeps coming up. This is the part that whenever you've got undead versus undead, it's okay. Uh, They take the market square. Kalita keeps moving in. Um, the, the, the chariots are sort of screwed because they can only get like one, it's like the, the roads are only enough to get one down at a time. So Prince, yeah. <laughs> like Prince Nefetep, charge one chariot down, charge it forward as far as you can go till it's smashed and destroyed. And then the enemy trashes it. Then when it's completely trashed and they're going to get by, charge another one down. Just like one at a time, smash it a little farther, a little farther, a little farther. All right, cool. Um, okay, then some creatures that are left over from ancient Lamia attack both sides. What the hell is this? Well, these are the, because, um, these are the spirits that you talked about earlier. Yeah, but I mean, do we ever get a real definition of what these are? Or, I mean, are they supposed to come into play later? Because they don't really. No, I just think they they are what they are. Oh, okay. I was just wondering if there was something that was, I was supposed to recognize that I missed or... Just fell spirits that haunt the rubble. Oh, so they just attack everybody. Okay. Um, so King Tharuk, like I said, he's freaked out, and he's just charging through, and he is smashing stuff left and right, left and right, but he's also taking a beating. And he's got his one lich priest with him, just keeps healing him. That's like he's focusing on just healing him because he's taking such a beating. But he is taking the brunt of it. Um, and then the vampires show up, and what do they show up on, Greg? Oh, excuse me, I was coughing there. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, they got they got some form of monstrous cart. <laughs> they got a coven throat because it's awesome. Well, yeah, it's the same, you know, there's probably the same ones that were being used earlier. Yeah. I just, I, I'm just, every time they mention it and how awesome it is, I'm just going to point it out because I love them. Um, now, his guard are getting smashed. And then they're standing around confused. Coming through and smashes into them, and then they all stand around. Huh? Wait, what's going on? 
Um, and he actually gets there, and he starts getting mesmerized by the beauty of these vampires. Like, they almost got him. And then he shakes it off and kills one of the handmaidens. Yeah. Um, then the two vamps that are left, they kill the lich priest. He kills another vampire, but then he's surrounded. The third handmaiden kills him, but then the death curse thing happens again. This death curse is kind of cool. Like, whenever you get down to that last bit of battle, it seems like they're always taking out that last one. So he managed to take out the whole three handmaidens between fighting and his death curse. Um, and, you know, a lot of just, it's still a lot of fighting. Khalid is looking for Neferata. Uh, she does find one of the handmaidens, and they're fighting. And... Uh, you know, she's. I like this. She has her archers shooting at her skeletons. She's ducking between the skeletons. Her necronites go around back and keep her from being able to run away. Yeah. yeah she's, she knows she's got to trap one of these vampires. And that's what she does. She traps one and then basically beats the information she needs out of her. Um, what else? Her, the other armies get through. They're grinding their way through, grinding their way through. And Neferata is just sitting, watching all of this in her scrying pool, off to the side. She's not anywhere near the fighting. Um, no. In fact, the only reason she jumps into anything is because this battle, she needs to stretch this battle out a couple more days. Like, she's supposed to really keep them occupied. And uh, she's having trouble keeping them occupied. She's losing ground too quickly. Um, she's only got about a half day worth of soldiers left at this rate. So she's like, well... It looks like I got to get into the battle. And so she gets on her dread abyssal and heads out to the fight. Um, and yeah, and this is the part where they talk about how she just, she's wanted to be here for so long. And now all she wants is to leave and never come back. This place is trash. Like, you yeah, know, she's over it now. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Like she's got closure. It's like, you know, she's been brooding for how many thousands of years about coming back to this place and, taking it back and then she gets there and she's like wow what a crap hole she's like i've seen the rest of the world and this place is just a burnt out husk there's nothing for me here anymore when she gets over it um so let's see there's yeah she she goes to uh to help out because of some presence lurking in the ruins which turns out to be king hasap on his war sphinx right who's like awesome we can go and kill neferata Then Neferata starts doing magic. Yep, she's shooting dark magic at his troops. That's when he knows it's her. He knew it was a vampire. When he sees the dark magic, he goes, oh, there it is. Uh, he wants to go after her, uh, but she lands in front of him and pulls. Oh, this is another word. He's still a little bit in some of these tight quarters. And he's like, go after her. And she lands in front of him and basically throws a funnel of dark magic, you know, uh, straight down at him. And there's nowhere for it to go. Like, because it, it's trapped down so it basically just fills the street and goes all the way down and it's just killing everything in its path um and so he's got no choice but to charge at this point and but he's not gonna run right no no and, one once his son's been killed yeah and uh not only that but it's uh you know oh yeah he's not anyway but then she kills right. his and that's it that's it yeah the handmaidens join the battle and that's pretty much all she wrote the you know Neferat turns the prince of dust. All the prince's chariots are gone. Uh, at that moment, a nightmare galloped up from the north. Upon its back rode Namia, one of the Neferata's handmaidens. 
at first, I thought this was like, a, a, at first I was reading this and thought this was like a figurative nightmare, like some horrible thing was coming at her. Yeah. And, so, the nightmares from the book, Dave. Right. And that's what it is. The, I, like literally, night, like the horses, a nightmare. Yeah. But I, I mean, everyone's riding around on dread abyssals and necrosphinx, and they're like, oh, here comes a nightmare. And I was like, oh, my God, what horrible thing is this? Oh, wait, crap. It's an actual, like, knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, and and a mare, like a horse. I, was, <laughs> I felt really stupid. But um, so she puts one more blast, of de- and ra- you know, just, like, spends everything she's got and raises the whole darned army back up again. Um. And then as she's about to leave, I love it. she sends her one handmaiden in to go take a message over there and tell him to go fight. But yeah. before it leaves, she puts a, a like a secretly puts a, a, a command to her mount because she gave her her dread abyssal and told the dread abyssal that it's not leaving. It's just going to keep charging the line and kill everything it can before it dies. So it's like, well, screw you. You ain't you ain't giving a message and leaving. You are definitely fighting till the end. Um, and then you have um, the cool uh, meeting with Kalida. Yeah, uh, this is. I mean, this is this is the one really cool part in here. You know, and they have their little they have their little you know standoff out. Uh, you know, the showdown out in the middle of the street at noon. You know, I've been yeah. waiting for you. Oh, is that you? You know, and then so uh, she has the you know. It doesn't have to be this way. Oh, it always had to be this way. Bah, bah, bah. Mm. And I love the fights happening, and uh, Kalita's winning. Oh, yeah. And then that weird unknown thing jumps up and attacks them both. It's not one weird unknown thing. It's one of many weird unknown things. Yeah. It's one of the many spirits. Exactly. I'm sorry. You are correct. Uh, but that causes enough distraction that Neferata gets down the passage that Kalito is blocking and hits the little button and the secret door panel shuts and she hears Kalita screaming out there. She doesn't know if it's because she's fighting the monster or she's just pissed off that Neferata got away. But Neferata couldn't care less. She's out. Yeah. And that's a, basically about it. That's the end of that story. She went, she did the distraction, she distracted as long as she can. Done her job. Yep, got the job done, and now I'm leaving. And then, finally, you see Nagash. And I love this description of the heavy-cloaked figure gliding over the desert. Like, he's just, he's not even touching the ground, he's just floating over the desert. That's it, yeah. And uh, this is the, ba- the battle for Lamia has just started at this point. So it's like, you know, roll back, roll back the clock a few days. While that battle is starting, this is where he is. And I love how they describe, there's all these, like he can sense, Nagash can sense all these different things under the sand, all these traps, you know, with the scorpions and all these other things, just waiting for any motion in the sand to attack, but he's not on the sand. Um, And then three sepulchral stalkers notice him, and they pop out and go to attack him. And then they see him like, "Uh uh-oh, they back off. (laughs) Like, oh, like they recognize his power. They're like, yeah, forget it. You can keep going. Which I liked that. I like that. The, I like that the the big scary things from earlier popped up, and we're like, "Oh, yeah. how about no?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh. um, now Nagash is in a hurry because he has no idea how long Neferata can tie up his enemies. I got the feeling that he didn't quite trust her to tie it up for as long as he told her to. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Like he gave her a time and said, "Okay, you know, if she can do half of this, we'll be lucky." 
but they um but Arkan also told Neferata exactly what the enemy would do. So it's not necessarily just that she couldn't do the job, but that she was never, you know, that um, they knew that the task would be too great anyway. Yeah, that's true. They gave her the uh, Fighting for Cursed Lamia for Dummies manual, didn't they? Yeah. Now, I like when he's got to get to the Marak, which is the east gate of the Valley of the Kings, which is now called the City of Decay. And I love how Setra never trusted this place. That was the place that wouldn't pay, pay tribute when he had, when he had uh, you know, sort of pacified all the lands. They were the ones who would constantly not pay tribute. Yeah. Um, whenever there were rebellions, it was the hardest to subdue. It was the hardest to subdue Marak. Almost every plot ever against him originated there, <laughs> you know. Um, he believed that they even conspired with Nagash before he fled to Nagashazar, but he couldn't prove it. So he wanted, you know, he wanted a portion of their troops to guard the east entrance. He's like, you, you know, you guys got to block, watch this. Yeah. And um, and he's really pissed at Kalita and Tharuk for not being there. He's like, ah, oh, I told you to be there. Um, so then you get a little side story here, uh, which is important. When Tharuk uh, didn't go, he left town. Um, when he left Hoptmos, who is the Master of Awakenings and the Hierophant of Morak, remember a lot of them wouldn't go with him. Mm. Uh, Nagash is talking to him in his head, t- talking to him for a while, saying how Setra's not worthy of his respect and stuff like that. I guess there were four Tomb Kings that were left in Morak. Remember the third who weren't going? Yeah. Uh, right. It was Obidia never even got awakened. Nagash talked to him in his head, and he was like, no. And so the, Nagash thought he could turn him. He said no. So basically, well, you're the Master of Awakenings. Don't wake him up. Uh, of the other three, two went with him right away. One refused, and that battle was short and quick. He was, you know, he awoke to just getting trashed. Um, but when Nagash gets there, he's still weak and he's tired. So basically, they didn't awaken Obidia, and he just went over there and ate him and all of his followers' souls. Like, they just left him waiting for him. Yeah, he's still weak after eating uh, Velaya, so... Yeah. She obviously wasn't that much of a meal for him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then everyone else left Morocco and headed west. Now, did I read this right? He stops on his way there and levels Qatar and the temples and the mountains. Um, the mountain, the temples that were in the mountains. It's, I think he says he actually just levels that whole... He's like on his way there but stops to level... Well, yeah, he breaks apart the top of the mountains, cascaded down the Charnel Valley. The very mountains collapsed inwards and the temples carved into the cliff faces shattered. Okay, so I was right. So even though Nagash is tired and weak, he can still just level mountains with his spells. Yeah. That works. That works. That was the job. Um, you know what? We'll uh, pause here. Quick musical interlude. Grab a quick uh, sip of water. And then we're going to get on to... Because guess what? Krell and King Far are still fighting. Oh, yeah. So let's get through this battle, because I think we're, we're getting close to this battle being done. All right, we'll be back.
Nagash and Usirian battled, the fight raging across levels beyond the comprehension of mortals. It was a war of wills, an eldritch battle and a clash between gargantuan powers. Their blows were thunderclaps, their scouring death curses would shrivel nations. The heavens shook with the fury of the struggle, the reverberation shaking both the material world and the realm of chaos. Nagash was the greatest necromancer the world had ever known, and he drew upon the awesome power reserves hoarded within the Black Pyramid. Usirian was much diminished from the Golden Age of Nehekara, when a nation fueled his being with worship and fell offerings. Yet still, he was an elder god, and wielded might beyond the ken of mortals. On they struggled, each unleashing strikes that would level mountaintops. While the faceless god battled Nagash, Dieter Helsnicht completed his ritual. With the final last wail, every soul in the underworld was bound to Helsnicht. All of them were his to command. With a sweeping gesture from multitudinous arms, Helsnicht caused the spirit seed to rise up and smite Assyrian. Not even one of the old gods could stand against the tide of souls. As the faceless god attempted to rise, Nagash struck three times, each blow reverberating across the underworld, a death knell, a doom of gods. Helsnick watched as his master greedily consumed what remained of Usirian. Nagash arose, more terrible than ever. And we're back, and it's time for a little more with Krell, our favorite Frankenstein's monster-looking thing. Um, I know, I know that's not how he looks. It's just how I picture him under all that armor. Krell and King Far, they're still fighting. It's been months. They've moved out of the salt plains, and they're now into the desert. I like how Krell admires the king's tactics. He's like, this guy's good. Like, he's a worthy opponent. Um, this, this, this king is coming out of sandstorms. Uh, he's buries troops for ambushes. Uh, he makes sure to go after the necromancers. Uh, doing all this stuff. Um, he leads the Vargo sort of out and then tr- kills them when they're out of the way. And Krell just can't get this job done. After And after every battle, once they pull away, they just, they're both of their sides, whoever's laying dead where their troops are, gets summoned back up. Uh, and now, but Krell's got a plan. He's going to have Dieter Helsnick try to raise some more guests, which haven't been seen for a really long time. Nah. So long that in the uh, 30 years that we've been, they've been doing Warhammer, it hasn't even been made mentioned. Uh, no, that's wrong. Am I wrong? Where the hell were more guests from? No, they haven't been mentioned, but because it is a setting once more, they have been mentioned. We just haven't seen mention of them yet. Ah, correct. This, I w- is one thing, okay. this is one thing that gets me, like when demigriffs were, it, all of a sudden they found demigriffs. No. When they, re- when they write a new army book, the old army books are got rid of. This is what um, Alan Bly meant when he, uh, not Alan Bly, um, Alan Merritt meant when he says that there is no canon in Warhammer or for, Warhammer 40k. Um as as I, I get you, what you're saying. I wasn't trying to imply I just, that. No, I just wanted to say it for listeners almost to understand right. what I'm saying. So when a new book comes out and there is information about a new unit, that is not a new unit. That unit has always been there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. You and I have had this conversation off the air, and I'm just, I am trying. We I'm, haven't seen them in, in, yeah, in the they, Yeah, 
but they haven't been mentioned. I mean, literally, they have. They're, they're so ancient that you don't. We. I mean, even in all the new books, we haven't heard them mentioned because they're literally so old that most people don't know about them. Yeah, I like the way they introduced them. Actually, so. Um, and that's kind of cool. It's something that is so ancient. Like he's got Helsnick knows about them because he's actually read some of the stuff from the books of Nagash. I mean, that's how he knows about them. That's how old these things are. Yeah. So um, now he's like, "Can you make these?" He goes, "I can, but I got to find a location with a lot of bones, and it's got to be it, basically it's got to be just right." And he keeps going to places, dozens of places. He's like, "Nope, it's not right. It's not right." Krell's starting to think he's full of crap that he can't do it. And finally, they get a spot that's right in him, and he's got two necro- necromancer assistants. They go down to the tombs, and these tombs have not been entered since Nagash's last ex- the last time he tried to conquer Nehekara. Yeah. So, the, I mean, this, we're talking how many thousand years since that last battle um, has have they sat there. Uh, he's down there for a full day. He comes out. A surprise, his assistants don't come out. Probably going to eat. <laughs> scooped out. Who knows? But he comes out with a bunch of Morgas. Morgas. They're twice the height of a man. Um, they're big. They're bulky. They're powerful. They're a real pain in the ass to put together if you buy the models. And it, it is to me the way they're written here. I haven't actually read the entry properly, but it, it appears that they are more constructs made of other bones rather than old Morgoths as a, an entity in itself. Yes, yeah, so, that's, yeah. that's what I gathered too. Yeah, that's what was so hard to put them together. I had to find the right types of bones in the right types of area to put this thing together. Um, and so Crow puts him in the center of the army because the banners kind of half hide him and the and the troops kind of half hide him because he doesn't want. And they're his hardest bit, so they're going to be the center of the army anyway. Right. He does, but, but he doesn't want them right up front smashing through everything. He's he's sort of hiding them a bit. He doesn't he want them to notice. So uh, they stop on this burial mound, and King Far sees. He sends his infantry. Now this is the big battle. King Far sends one infantry unit to the left. And one to the right, and he keeps his chariots and his light cav like dead center. And now he's now there's now Krell's got the puzzle, and this is where they got the tactics going on. If I go forward, I can't catch my my foot troops can't catch his cav. They'll just keep retreating, and then I'll have guys on my flanks. If I go to the flanks, his chariots in the flank. Yeah. yeah, I mean basically, if I go towards my flank, if I split my army, then he'll just split that up and attack. I, I could just go all to one side, but then that's going to create its own problems. So uh, basically, uh, he 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 does he goes forward and then splits off small portions left and right. So he actually breaks his army into three. Yeah, so he's got like a curved frontage. Yeah. Um. And so King Far sees this and he's like, "Ha ha, perfect!" So the chariots come at him, but before they hit him, they split and go left and right. And they're shooting, you know, arrows and everything and all this stuff. Uh, so he's going to try to destroy the left and right and then focus on the middle later. They're going to break. They're not going to engage that center core tough part. He's going to go after the the two detachments that have split off and go on uh, the smaller parts. And if he can smash that, then his entire armies will be on the flanks. Uh, Krell expects him to do this, you know. And so... <laughs> as 
as they come up to the center, they break left and right, just out of reach of the infantry, and then he's like, now. And the Morgaths go, jump over, all of them come swooping in. They only have hover, I think, right? But they can still hit the sides of the chariots. I still get charge at three, you know, ten. 3d6 yeah, 10 tip. inches with 3d6 so they go right over their own troops and smash the sides of the chariots that are not ready for this uh and the other chariots can't maneuver well the ones i mean they basically they they cause a pile up there's a big traffic jam yeah so the in the infantry gets there and that's pretty much it like the more gas smash them up his whole plan is ruined the left and right flanks are able to handle the infantry that he sent out and the Morgasts just are smashing. And by the time anything starts to to get together, the rest of his infantry is there chopping them up. Um, I love this part at the end where, as his warrior's honors demanded, King Far regarded his enemy champion and raised his own weapon in acknowledgement before turning his chariot and heading south towards Kemri. Far had done all that he could. He knew what was awaiting Krell and Kemri. Soon the scions of Nagash would feel the wrath of Setra. So he's like, look, I did what I could. He's going to make it to Kemri. The fact is, if I could stop him from getting there, I would have been praised. The fact that I stopped most of it from getting there, when they get to Kemri, they're screwed. Yeah. So. We're at the gates. We're at the doors now. The gates of Kemri. I love the description of this. Dude, Kemri's kind of amazing. 70-foot high walls of black granite and green marble. Oh, yeah. And you can still see the pyramids behind it. The white pyramid of Setra larger than all the others, except except for the black pyramid of Nagash. And I like how his is pure white to Nagash's black. It's like, you know, right there. Yeah. Um, there's a wall in front of that wall that's not as nice, but it's there. And it's it didn't quite make sense at first. Because especially when he said he set out his necrotex to build the Great Wall. I was like, well, which one did they build? What's going on here? Um, Krell cracks me up in this scene. Did you get a laugh out of Krell's hole when he's look when he's sizing up the place? Which bit? Here, uh, I'm on page uh, two seventy two, uh, the second column, p- paragraph one. Krell beheld Kemri for the first time. Aesthetics were wholly lost upon Nagash's war-minded lieutenant. He focused on the size of the walls and how difficult they would be to cross. He did not wonder or care about how such a massive necropolis had come into existence. Rather, he was trying to calculate the sheer number of warriors it could station. It was exactly as Archon had described it, save only for a hastily constructed outer wall. And then uh, beyond that, the older curtain was there. Krell cared not one whit about architectural style or ancient majesty. That was just, this would be hard to crack. I just love it. You're reading it. He's like, yeah. He's nothing about aesthetics, nothing about how beautiful it is, nothing that's been here for thousands of years. He looks at it and says, I got to bring it down. There's yeah. no. <laughs> it's, just weird, isn't it? it's just, it's fantastic, though. I, lo- I mean, he's he is definitely single minded, but, uh, you know, it's, it's fun when they point out the things he doesn't consider. Like anyone else would get there and be like, wow, that is amazing. I got it. I got it. I still got to get in, but wow, it's amazing. He just looks and says, oof, that's going to be tough. Isn't it beautiful? What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and so Krell gets there, and it's, you know, basically, you know, there's the giant spiral of blackness that's still over Kemri around the Black Pyramid. Uh, and Krell had no idea how they were going to conquer this place. Like, he looked at it and said, I, I definitely don't have enough troops to take over this whole place. 
But Nagash said attack, so attack. Like, no waiting for ba- – like, you know Manfred would have waited for backup. Yeah. You know – yeah. he, he said later that, you know, Krell did not doubt he could penetrate the outer walls, but it would take a force ten times his own to capture the city. But he's like, well, that's not my job. Exactly. I've got to do this bit. Yeah. He told me when I get here to attack and crack it open. All right. Um, and again, you're reading this whole part. You know, they, they, they mention how Farr's troops were all his. Now, like all the troops that he trashed out there in the final battle were his. And you know what I got? I got this idea while I was reading this when you described that, how he took Farr's troops and now they were his and his army's bigger. Did you ever play war with the card game when you were kids? When you were a kid? Mm, I think so. You take 52 cards. You play this with your... With, I always play this with my, with my little sister. Because when you're little, it's easy to do. You split the deck into 26 cards each, and you each flip a top card. Whoever has the highest card gets both cards. Right, no. if, if you tie, if it's the same number, you flip another card on top of that, and whoever has the higher total gets all the cards. Yeah. And basically, you play war. And now... You always had to split the aces evenly because if someone had four aces, they couldn't lose. But this whole how they play reminded me of playing war because basically, if you started winning a lot and taking all my cards, eventually the only cards I won were if I had some a couple of really good numbers. Yeah. So my force would get smaller, but then those forces were really you know, they were the high numbers. So when we got to the bottom of the deck, we shuffled and played again until someone got all the cards. So suddenly I'd have less, then all of a sudden it would completely flip to my end, then completely flip to your end, and the game would go on forever unless, until, until you got bored and called it. And yeah. that's, that's kind of like how the fighting is here. It reminded yeah. me of playing war with the cards, you know? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, Helsnick's making bone catapults. Krell is forming, and I love, Krell doesn't think about being destroyed either. Like, he's like, there's no concern about losing this entire army. He just has to do the maximum amount of damage to that wall and break through. Mm. Uh, he also knows that they, he sees nobody on the walls. He's like, they're there. You have to be stupid not to have somebody there. So he knows there's stuff that he can't see. And, uh, and then they, they cut to Cetra, and this is great. It's how Krell's army is a disappointment. This is the first one that shows up, and it's, he's disappointed. There's no honor here. Nagash has no honor. He's just raising anything he finds. You're walking past a random graveyard and add it to your army. Where's the honor in that? Where's the glory in that? I mean, just this totally different point of view. Nagash is like the guy who's like doing whatever he needs to do to win. And Cetra's like, what? What is this? Like, like, like Cetra wouldn't even deign to raise these things. Like, they wouldn't be, he wouldn't be caught. He wouldn't allow them in his army. No. Uh, and in fact, he's really mad that he sees his warriors. In Krell's ranks, he finds it an affront. He finds it offensive. You know, it's like oh, he took my own troops and tur- oh my, wh- how could he? And I'm wondering if, as this battle goes on, if his lich priests aren't taking Krell's troops and raising them for themselves, if they just keep re-raising their own troops, since they do have the 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 superior numbers, are they not? Because it's a different type of magic, right? I mean, they're sending the actual souls back into their own bodies. Yeah, well, I think if you look in game, you, um, you can't raise new units. You can only heal the units you've got, and you can only heal them up to maximum size. Right. I think that's representative of the fact that because of the nature of how um, how the, the, they were raised the first time after they were all killed, I think that's how their magic works. 
Right, so they just can keep re-raising the ones that fell before. And yeah. that's one of the things. When the necromancers raise them, they're not taking their souls back. They're animating them under the necromancer's will, which is yeah. why their spirits can't get back in the bodies. So once yeah. once once uh, Krell's forces take those bodies, those spirits can't get back in, which is it's kind of neat. I, I never really thought about it that way. I mean, raising is raising when you're playing the game. Um. But it's interesting that he just looks at this. He sees his enemies. And also how Cetra just hates waiting. He's got that uh, Nehekar in battle thing, too. There they are. Smash them. Yeah. Well, he knows He knows that Nagash is coming, and he's just wanting to face him down. Right. And he also talks about how uh, this is Nagash he's fighting, and he's learned not to just come in on the attack. Yeah. Coming in straight to attack Nagash doesn't work. So he's waiting. And he's well, he, yeah. And then he knows that it's not just about this fight either. Was it? He might hope to win a military victory, but Setra believed Nagash had some other plan. Right. Oh he yeah. Had, they've been enemies for so long that he, he kind of he's got to know Nagash a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And so he's setting up his plan. Yeah, they're all getting ready for. All right, if we get hold of Arkan or 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 Nagash himself, then we've got to unmake them. Yeah, he talks about that. When, In fact, it talks about how he's been doing that actually for a while. If you yeah. rebel against him, the leaders of the rebellion are brought to his priests, and your body and soul are destroyed in extremely painful ways where you can never come back, except Nagash always gets away. He, you know, he never manages to capture him and do that to him. There is this great... Uh, here it is. This is uh, just a little bit more that... Our, uh, Nagash, uh, Setra's consideration of Nagash In his long campaigns Fighting against Nagash and Archon in the past Setra had learned that neither he Nor his priests could match their dark magic In the end, Setra had beaten them Because he had proven to be a shrewd tactician Nagash might be a fa- Fratricidal power mad priest Grasping for position beyond his station But he was no fool He might hope to win a military victory But Setra believed Nagash had some other plan the great king need only look at the vortex of dark clouds funneling out of the sky to remind himself of what he faced. Yeah, so it's not enough to kill him. He's got to capture him, destroy the body, destroy the soul, and they've prepared something particularly horrible. So that's great. Uh, and then he gets mad. He signals over to Ramhotep, and he's like, let's show him something. And I love this because he signals Ramhotep, and I'm thinking, wait, which one's Ramhotep? Wait, he's the guy who does all the constructs, right? He's the special character. Yeah. So that outer wall that was impressive, but not nearly as, like, well, you know, because that's, that's the thing. Even Krell looked at it and said they got this 70-foot-tall black and, you know, black marble wall. And then they got this smaller wall in front of it that's just, it's like. Ramshack. It, yeah, it makes no sense. Well, you know, it's, you know, you got about, what, you got about 30 feet of wall and then a big statue of, of some, you know, something and then another 30 feet of wall, another sta- So it looked kind of decorative. Well, it's just the wall starts to crumble. All those things that were carved into it were not carved into it. Those are all those, you know, the Nehekaran constructs. Yeah. So basically what looked like a, a, a fancy decorative wall was actually just a wall that was hiding all of these big monsters in it. So before they renew it, they're under attack. Colossi, War Sphinx, Scorpions, Bone Giants, Ushapti, the whole nine yards. And Krell's neither shocked nor dismayed. He's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you know, bone catapults are shooting from our side. Helsinki's bone catapults are working. The Sphinxes breathe jets of flame. Did, can they do that in the game? Did I miss something? Yeah, war Sphinxes have a breath. A fire, breath weapon? Fiery breath, yeah. I never play against them, so I didn't know. I kind of like that, you know, big fire coming out their mouth and stuff. I'm like, that's cool. Um, but then they start smashing up Krell's warriors, and then the Red Jackals of Raystroth, these Ushabsti, are, mm. are killing the Doomed Legion. Krell's, Krell's buddies are falling to these Ushabti, which in the game, and even in the Nagash trilogy, you remember you were talking about that earlier. Dude, the Ushabti are kind of badass in the in the books. Yeah. Um, yeah. Krell manages to kill two of them. But they're hard to put down because they're made of stone, and the, they're they're bending the blades that are going after them. Uh, in fact, it's the Morgasts who show up and smash the Red Jackals. When it's all done, you got Krell, twenty left of his doomed legion, and six Morgasts. Everywhere else, the forces are taking a beating. These big monsters are just trashing stuff. <laughs> In this break, while Krell's looking around to see what's going on, another group of Ushapti blindside him and smash into him. And they kill everything except Krell at this point. The Doomed Legion gets trashed. The Morgas get trashed. Uh, Krell's holding them off. And all of a sudden, he's fallen, flying through the air. Like, doesn't know what's going on. And that's be- at first, I thought something smashed him. Like, he was flying back through the air. Yeah. But no, the ground shook and threw him off his feet. The whole ground splits and opens up. And there's a couple mile-wide chasm now formed between... The troops of Kemri and Krell's uh, guys. Archon has shown up, and that's his first. That's his first move. Open up a couple mile wide chasm under the feet of the enemy's troops to yeah. buy himself a little time. That's a pretty impressive move. It's a pretty badass wizard. Yeah. So uh, Krell goes over to Archon. And he sees Archon over there, starts heading over to him, and a tomb scorpion pops out of the ground and grabs him. And he's crushing him, trying to cut him in half, and he's pulling on that, and a stinger goes, plomp, pumps him through his chest, and the poison on it's actually, like, messing with him. Like, yeah. it, it, like he's, it, it doesn't hurt, but the poison is screwing him up, and he pulls his way out, grabs his axe, and then I'm reading this, and I was like, holy crap, where is this part? Because I, I, I just about... 275. Yeah, 275. Oh, my. Reaching instinctively for his axe, Krell swung a double-handed heaving blow that embedded deeply in the scorpion's head. Even as he did so, however, its pincers darted out, frantically seeking to reclaim what it had dropped. With a shearing snip, the White Lord's head was sent tumbling to the sands, dozens of feet away from his body. I freaked out here. I actually sat up straight from what I was reading, and the kids all stopped to look at me like, what's wrong? And I looked at Harrison. I'm like, they decapitated Krell. He's like, what? Yeah, poor old Krell. Yeah, I was like, holy crap, they killed Krell. Because I just, I mean, so far in the book, decapitation pretty much means you're dead. Yeah, mainly it's occurred to living things, though. That's true, but I still kind of freaked out because, I mean... They've been doing so many decapitations, and nobody's like been even suggested they could come back from it. So I was like, "Ah, oh, they killed the girl. But then, <laughs> then it cuts to Archon's point of view, and this chasm gives him time to deploy. And I love this part. With Krell twitching in the throes of reincarnation, it was Archon alone who took command. And then I went, whew, Krell's still alive. Well, I don't know why I'm rooting for the bad guys here, but uh, I just like Krell. 
Um, and I love that Archon, he orders his troops, but he doesn't order the traitor kings that Nagash turned to his side. He no. bids them into action. He's, he's you know, uh, you know, he's he's coercive. He's got uh, and he's got a good way with words. He knows how to talk to these guys. He knows that if he just starts ordering them around, they might get pissy and not listen. And it's funny because and that's really smart too. I mean, you look at this, and Archon is at, okay. This is your job. This is what we need you to do, please. Because yeah. you know well, he's used to them because he grew up with them, right? And let's face it, Nagash only got them on his side by telling him that Setra always bosses them around and they shouldn't be following Setra. He's kind of a jerk. So it's like, well, don't be a jerk to him because that's kind of how we talked him into our side. So um, the, uh, some of the war constructs are heading off just trying to walk around this mile-long chasm. I mean, they're big. they got 20-foot strides. Let them run around the corner. Uh, Ramhotep runs right up to the edge with the Necrolith Colossi. And uh, there's just they, they start picking up giant pillars and throwing them across the chasm. Yeah, a whole battalion of necrolith colossi. Shh, that's a lot. How many is in a battalion? I mean, it's got to be like a hundred, right? Who knows? <laughs> oh yeah. So, and this is the part where Setra knows the real battle is now starting because Archon's there. He even thinks Nagash might be there somewhere in disguise on the field. You know, because you can't trust that wily old honorless, you know. Uh, and he didn't like... Now, remember when he was all upset that his warriors were with Krell, that they had taken his warriors and brought them with? He is yeah. livid when he sees the traitor kings are there of their own accord. And he's like, that's it. I'm done waiting. Get my chariot. I'm done. Um. And this is when you see Ramhotep making the bridges, the two pillars that the Colossi brought out and just putting the pillars across. And then there's a bronze necro-colossus that just steps across and basically, you know, uses his body, just, you know, spans the thing for them to cr crawl across. Um, and, of course, it becomes a battle. Just start, they, they, they destroy one of the pillars and it falls down with everything on it. Um, the one benefit of these columns this thing is that they can't come across in mass that they can stand right where they're coming across and they got him sort of bottlenecked you know yeah it's a choke point so archon and his guys even though they're not i mean you know a colossi against a bunch of skeletons a lot of skeletons are going to die but if we can just keep them in that bottleneck at least they can mitigate the damage it's good tactics yeah problem is they kept putting more and more bridges down yeah, once the once they've got about nine bridges across, he says, once there's nine bridges and it's pretty solid, that's when Cetra's army's unleashed. This army's huge. I got about a half a page listed just what's coming out in my notes. I mean, I don't want, I don't think we need to go through every little thing that comes out. It is the biggest city ever. Yeah. Met. In fact, out of the main gate, the army that's marching out of the main gate is coming out 200 troops wide. Yeah. So that's how, and, and there's room still, but they're coming out 200 across, marching out, and uh, there's also dozens of lesser portals that things are coming out from. Only, only Cetra's personal army is coming through the main gate. The rest of them got to go other ways because they are not worthy of the main gate. You know, there's a lot of class stuff that you see Cetra talking about that makes me dislike him, and you know, and I'm not trying to be some hippy dippy, you know, oh, the, you know. But seriously, it's like, it's just... That's just place of honor. Uh, yeah, he's, I guess. He's the king of kings. Yeah. 
It's just I watch it like, whoa, wow, because they do. They have versions like these other things are coming out. These things are pretty cool too, but they don't come out this way. Uh, you know, chariots, calf, enough calf to shake the desert floor. Um, mm. Enough chariots that the dust from their movement is higher than the seventy foot city wall. Um, you know, everything's coming through. I like the the, the hawk legions of Setra, his most famous warriors. The legions stood 10,000 warriors strong, although this counted for less than a tenth of Cetra's total infantry. Yeah, I had that marked too here. That was the part I was going to read. That's just, that's, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's coming out against what they've got left. Meanwhile, now you got the little story part. And you know what? You know how when you read the uh, army books and stuff, they've got the little sidebar stories, and they never quite... Like, they're just there. Like, when you get through the page or get to the end of an idea, you kind of go back and read the little sidebars. Right. That's how, when I started reading this book, that's what I was doing. And then I realized that these little side pieces are put exactly where they belong in the story. Like, they're not, meanwhile, something, this is, at this time, this is what's happening. So you don't have to, I liked that. I'm just mentioning it now because I'm noticing it as I'm, as I'm flipping the pages here. Yeah, I mean, it's slightly different. Again, in within... The army books, they're telling just, you know, what has gone on. So those little stories are adding in. Where this is, whereas this is one story. Right. They it's, wouldn't work if they weren't. Yeah, it's, they're not out of place. It's just basically these little story parts are a shift from third person to first person perspectives. That's all they are. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, it's a great little way of introducing these other little parts or, or focusing in on that specific part. Yeah. Um, and being able to tell it in a slightly different way. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, and so let's get this one little story because this is important. Uh, Skrick Skittleclaw from the uh, – is, is he like an assassin? He's from Clan Eschen. yeah. He's breaking into this <clears throat> this tomb, and he gets all the way in, and it's the tomb of Prince Apophis, who's the special character who was cursed. He's got all yeah. the beetles or the, the scarabs or whatever. And uh, he goes in there, and Prince Apophis' voice comes in, and basically he tells him where to find the, des- the, the Destroyer of Eternities, and it's like a fabled weapon. The Fellblade's destroyed, but the Destroyer of Eternities will still take out Nagash if you can kill him with it. Much better in the old book, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and basically he tells him, they can do this, it's a better blade, it'll destroy him, uh, and then all of a sudden all the scarabs, like in mass, go out. Like, you know, he thought he was going to get killed by Apophis, but he tells him about it, and then all the scarabs go out, and he's like, oh, he's gone. Phew. Uh, and he turns to leave, and then he hears all the snakes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's not letting you out. Uh, but so it's a nice little jump in there. It's interesting. It gives, it sets the mood, and now we know there's this other thing going on. Um, An assassin should get out of there anyway. You would think he would, but it didn't make it sound like it. Um. All right, Cetra's armies are ready, and the remaining uh, actually Cetra's armies. When his armies start marching out, all those uh, constructs that were over there fighting and trying to get across the the bridges and trying to do all the, they all stop and they back up and they join the ranks. Like he's really ready now. Yeah. You know. Um. And he's got his archers in the center. They're going to start firing as he moves forward. He's got the chariot host of King Rakaf with his son, Prince, uh, with the Dawn Banner on the east side. 
King Furthotek with the Tithe Army uh, and the Hierophant of Kemri with the League of Lich Priests uh, on the on the west. So the Tithe Army, that yeah, every city had to send a tithing over for this. Yeah. So he's got them. Now, they're all ready to attack. They're starting to move forward. Uh, let's take another break here. And when we come back, we will get through this uh, battle because this is the big final battle. The you know Nagash is about to show up and uh, wreck some stuff. So we'll be right back. Yeah. Manfred felt a sixth sensation. Nagash was no longer merely the most powerful of his kind, but a being on the threshold of something far far greater. Manfred had yet hopes of manipulating or betraying the first. The second was proof against even his grandest schemes. I have humbled you, Setra, proudest of kings, but for now I offer you honor. Manfred knew what was to come, for he sourly recognized that Setra's path echoed his own. Too late, he saw that opportunity lost. He had faced the same choice and had lacked the will to resist. For the first time, the vampire realized that he should have fought as Setra had that together the two of them could have prevailed. But that moment had been lost long ago. Bow before me, and you will be one of my Mortarks. Deny me and perish. Cetra said nothing at first, but hung defiant in Nagash's grip. Then he raised his head to meet the great necromancer's gaze. Cetra does not serve, he shouted. Cetra rules. So be it. Nagash intoned, stretching out a claw toward the struggling king. There was a blinding flash of emerald light. A chorus of brittle snapping sounds split the air as Cetra's body was torn apart and flung across the sands. The broken limbs twitched once and then lay still. Cetra, the imperishable great king of Nehakara, had finally met with defeat. All right, once again into the breach. In the final battle for Kemri and for all of Nehekara. So, uh, when we last left Archon, Archon was on his uh, abyssal, whatever it's called, the thing. What, was it? what is it called? Abyssal Terror. That's it. Uh, and he's out there surveying the battlefield. And um, let's see. Archon's, uh, Archon is out there. Oh, Dread Abyssal. Sorry, Dread Abyssal. That's what it was. Yeah. Uh, he's surveying the battlefield. Clouds of arrows are hissing downwards. His whole battle line's holding steady. In his last calm moment before the ensuing clash, he stretched out his will, seeking contact with his master. Archon never liked this plan. It was not sacrifice that galled him, for he had died for his master and would do so again. Rather, it was trusting others. Archon hoped all was prepared by those inside Camry, for he did not know how long he would last against the full might of Cetra. So like this, it's like, ooh, there's another plan going on, and they got people on the inside. Of course they got people on the inside, spies and networks. But these two armies come together, and Archon is losing. I mean, they're tearing up his army. So he actually has to jump in. Uh, there's this huge eruption of skulls, a tower of bale fire, and he rides up on it. Um... But as his forces are dying, the necromancers just keep bringing them back. And so uh, Cetra heads out and tries to go for Archon. And this was weird, okay? 
what was up with this? Am I missing something? Cetra goes, and this guy, Katap, the eldest of the lich priest, stops him. Like, gets in front of his chariot and stops him and tells him about the Destroyer of Eternities and where he can find it. And I'm reading this, and it says uh, it's buried in the tomb, uh, a weapon so mighty it could lay even lay Nagash low. When he had finished speaking, Katep bowed his head and awaited the death blow he knew would be the his. Setra, his rage turned cold as night by the priest's impertinence, did not keep Katep waiting long for oblivion. So apparently just stopping him and talking to him without permission gets you decapitated. I mean, again, I know we got this whole class system thing going on and stuff, but, I mean, did, did I miss something here? It's not a class system. <clears throat> it's um, it's the way a lot of things run. It's not necessarily class. You've got a king in the middle of a battle who's a war king who's having someone coming up and trying to tell him what to do. Tells him there's a there's a weapon that can win this war and where to find it, and he kills him. I'm just I'm just I'm just saying from my point of view, Cetra is a dick to his people. He, he's got to rule by absolutes. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I get I get it. I get it. it's their culture and it's how things work. I just, ugh. I, like, I have, you know, I, I'm finding myself rooting for Nagash, which I shouldn't be doing, you know. <laughs> I just, ugh, I guess, you know. I'm, I feel, I find myself rooting for the bad guy here because Cetra is just kind of unlikable to me, but. I get. I mean, I get that he's got to be what he's got to be, but whatever. I guess we'll go on. Okay, so three days later, chop, 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 raise, 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 hack, 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 raise, raise, raise. Uh, the forces from the north are dying. Uh, Helsnick just goes in, and after three days of chopping, he walks in and basically raises all three days' worth of the dead, and suddenly the Nehekarans are surrounded. Um, mm. You know, they're... They're outnumbered because three days worth of dead bodies on the ground, and he just brings them all right back. Here, I'm going to read this little passage because this basically sums up the whole part that I've been saying this whole time about why this gets a little boring. Most often, it was all for naught. In an instant, necromancy negated days of struggle and hard-won ground, restoring those that had fallen. In some cases, combatants slew the same foe repeatedly, only to find that they had been raised up again, returning the balance of forces back to what it had been when the fighting first broke out. Where the fighting was thickest, or where a warrior managed to chop down a necromancer or a lich priest, the killing could proceed at a rate faster than any magic could replace. So uh, this is just kind of what I've been talking about, how, um, you know, it's there's no sense of, of, of you know, I mean, it's just, there's nobody, nobody's really dying out here. I mean, there's a couple of characters that get killed and they're not being brought back, but I, I just don't feel like there's any losses happening here. Well, the Tomb Kings are losing lots. Because they're being raised back by the vampires. And there are plenty of um, leash priests and necromancers that are being killed as well. Yeah. and I, Well, yeah, I guess the, in the lich priests well, priest are raising back some of their own as well. It's just they also yeah. outnumber the... Every time a vampire thing is raising back the dead, that's ones that tomb kings aren't raising. Right. But the tomb kings had such great numbers anyway. It just seems a little. I, I I I guess I have trouble wrapping my head around it. I have trouble really. It's it's giving me trouble caring, you know, personally. 
So, uh, let's see, four days more of battle. Cetra's winning a little bit more due to his constructs. Then, the, hey, they bring out the casket, because you've got to bring out the casket eventually in the story, right? And the casket's blasting undead left and right, blasts Archon right out of the sky. His dread abyssal takes a hit. Um, three times Cetra has found him in battle and come after him, and three times he's ditched him and avoided him. Uh, now Cetra's almost on top of him, and he just reaches out and blasts Cetra with this dark magic. But he's got this scarab brooch of Usirian, the god of the undead, and th- do, blasting him with death magic. The god of the of undeath is just, uh, uh, nope, or the un- god of the underworld, I should say. Like, nope, death magic won't won't hurt you. He's got a two-plus ward against this stuff, apparently. Um. So Cetra flies in. The Dread Abyssal still flopping around. He decapitates it. And then uh, just runs, right, cuts Archon. You know, when he cuts the head off the Dread Abyssal, it breaks through Archon's rib cage. Um, his, his servant, Nekhef, tries to lay in the killing strike, but, you know, Archon just uses magic and crushes him. Uh, and then he starts covering himself up in the blackness. He's going to escape in this blackness of death magic, except Cetra comes in with the his weapon which you know it glows with the light of of you know the gods and just cuts right through him it actually cuts him in half splits him down the middle cuts him in half ties each half to a chariot and starts dragging him through the city so yeah. this is actually kind of cool but he leaves the battlefield with him because he's got to drag archon down to the uh Ankmar, the master of embalming to destroy him um, meanwhile, the blackness at this point dissipates, which I thought was important. While he, when he cuts Archon in half and starts dragging him into the city, the darkness above starts to dissipate and break through. Sunlight starts to break through all the clouds and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, oh, that's probably yeah. important. Getting near the end of things. Yeah. So, uh, and as we see. When Archan's body's given over to Ankmar, they, um, we find out that he has a different master. Yeah, he leaves him with the body, and he's like, I'm going back to the battle, and doesn't stay to see what happens. And he's like, okay, thanks, I'll, I'll take care of it, no problem. And uh, basically, <coughs> all the other priests are holding the jars, those canopic jars, and he's like... Uh, they say one of them says to him, "Hey, that's not the usual things we do here." And he's like, "Yeah, I know." And then starts to do this spell, and they're all paralyzed, and yeah. basically their souls get sucked into the jars. And that's Archon the Black starts coughing up all this stuff, and uh, it's all this black cloud that turns into Nagash. So. It- Cetra was right. Nagash was on the field. He had stuck himself into Archon with the plan of eventually fighting until he gets caught. And once he gets caught, they bring him in there, and he's already got the the guys turned to his side, the right guy, to help bring him back. Now, this is the part where it really starts to get cool. Um. Cetra goes to find the destroyer of eternities, but it's gone. So he goes back to the fight, and when he gets out there, Harkin and Manfred are there with all sorts of zombies. And I love the little aside here. Manfred's pissed because Harkin kept stopping to plunder 
all along yeah. the way. They were late for the fight because he's like, oh, there's treasure there. Stop. Let's go get some treasure. Stop. Let's go get some treasure. I think he's also late because he doesn't want to be He's pissed because he doesn't want to be late because if you're late, then that's going to steal some of the glory that he can be getting in this battle, the proving himself to Nagash. That's it. Any chance of maneuvering for position. Yeah, which he's losing out on because he's not at the battle. So they start reinforcing the lines. There are more vampires who know, you know, vampire magic. So, you know, they're bringing back more and more and more. Uh, the loss of blackness, the, of the, the darkness has slowed them down a bit. They're still able to do what they're doing, but it's just it's not as easy when you don't have all this stuff to draw from, um, except for Elschnick. Yeah. Um, what does it say here? Uh, a few times the opposing lich priest stopped to counter his spells, but their insignificant en- efforts did nothing to disrupt his flow of necromantic might. He realized he could wield magic just as well, in fact, better than he could. Uh, in fact, all they did was alert him to their presence, allowing him to track them down. Although dried, he found that the remains of the lich priests of Nehekara satisfied his cravings. With each new consumption, his ability to see further into the spectral realms and his influence over its dark energies increased. So he'll eat the, the, the dried-up husk brains out of the out of the lich priests, too. Well, yeah, lich priests don't die, though. Right. So slightly different, but yeah. Yeah, but they said it's still dried, it's still dried up a bit. So, yeah. Yeah. But he'll eat them, too, and he's still whipping magic around left and right. Uh, meanwhile... Uh, King Furthotek is fighting against Ulfik the Black-Handed. Um, yeah, he gets cut in half. The Grimguard are butchered. Uh, every, they, they would have just completely fallen apart, except there were so many zombies there. Yeah. Um, and then Manfred's... <laughs> I love Manfred's plan. Here come the Necrosphinx. I'm going to throw so many zombies at it that it's not going to get to me. And they just start stomping through him too quick, and he realizes two things. A... Crap, my plan's not working. B, where in the hell are Archon and Nagash? <laughs> like he's looking around going, where are they? We're supposed to be fighting. This thing's chewing up my zombies left and right. So I, I just love that idea. First he's throwing them at him. It's like, oh, this isn't working. Where are these guys? That's it. And then Setra rides back out as well. Yep, and he's redeploying and reorganizing his troops, getting everything. He comes out and says, oh, this is a mess. Boom, sets it straight, starts winning again. Uh, I love this part. Then there's where this little spectral pulse. Only people who are really attuned to death magic see it. Of course, Helsnick sees it. He knows Nagash is here. And he hears in his head, I have need of your aid, Dieter Helsnick. Come with me into the underworld. And he sees a path, like in the, in the, uh, a path in the magic, and yeah. walks into the realm of the underworld. And poof, gone. It's kind of like a portal. Only different. And this yep. time, it's a portal where we know where they're going. It's not just a weird magic portal and all the all the wood elves disappear. They went to a distant shore. Yes. It's fine by me. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, meanwhile, back in the temple, Archon wakes up in the temple, and he's in pain, but his spirit is still tethered to his body, but just barely. He actually starts grabbing the bottom half of him and pulling it toward the top half so he can reconnect and start putting himself back together again. Uh, that whole spell. Uh, so basically, all those priests that um, that the one traitor priest stole all their souls. 
and their souls were the jump start to reawaken Nagash inside that's, of Archon and get him out. Yeah. And that's also what woke up Archon. Uh, apparently, this was the part of the plan he didn't like. This was, a, this was sort of a one-ring sort of plan. Apparently, when uh, Nagash was kicking out all of his that black stuff to create the darkness... Most of his power and his spirit was in the blackness itself, which is why it was around the, the Black Pyramid. So it didn't so much dissipate as went into the Black Pyramid. Uh, he had to weaken himself enough so he could hide inside Archon. And yeah. now, that he's bl- now that he's back, he's basically got to get, he's got a clear path. He's just got to get to the Black Pyramid, and he's got a plan to make himself, uh, make himself better and make himself okay. Um, and you know the the big the there's a giant necrosphinx there, the golden guardian of Petra, made of black marble and pure gold, and Nagash. You know, basically throws some death magic and wipes out the the warriors on the back and the howda and all that. And when it comes at him, he just basically surrounds himself with death magic, and anything he touches, it just crumbles and dies. So, <laughs> what are you gonna do, right? That's it. Yeah. I mean, the War Sphinx attacks him, and he just, like, it takes a swipe at him. It's not afraid, and then he touches it, and parts of him just start to crumble and fall apart. And he's like, then it is afraid. And he jumps forward and just, like, basically does a five-finger death punch to this guy. He just hits it right in the chest full-handed, and it just starts to crumble. It's like, oof. Yeah. um, He's he's beating up scarier stuff than this already. (laughs) Yeah. That's the problem. Uh, Okay, now here's, here's here's one of the coolest parts in the book. Uh, Dieter Helsnick is in the underworld, and Nagash, in when you see him in his like spirit form, I mean, looks like a god. He's just huge, and all this death magic power swirling around him. And he tells Dieter Helsnick, he gives him the nine books and says, "Read all this and do what you're supposed to do." And so he's reading all nine books at once, and he's like all excited because he's never, he's only read snippets of this, and even then it was like badly translated copies. Here he's got the original deal, and he's reading them while Nagash is fighting Osirian. The God of Death. Yeah. The God of the Underworld. Yeah, this is a bit of a different turn. I don't think anyone... Didn't see this coming? This, no. Now, he hasn't been worshipped like he used to be. So, And the gods require worship for their strength. So he's not as powerful as he was, but he is still a god. Being diminished means Nagash can kind of stand up to him for a while and fight with him. But as Helsnick finished reading all nine books, and he's reading all nine books simultaneously... Um, reads them all, and suddenly finishes this huge spell and binds every spirit in the underworld to himself. Yeah. Dude, that's, that's kind of crazy. I mean, when you think of all the dead spirits in there, he binds every soul in the underworld to himself and sends them all against Assyrian, and they just bum-rush him and tackle him and start yeah. piling up on him. And then Nagash hits him three times because that's the magic number. You know, that's every fairy tale, every bit of magic number. Three times... One, two, three, and then Syrian's basically dead, so he eats him. Yeah, he devours him, yeah. So now he's got all that power of a god. You know, and so meanwhile, outside this giant pillar of dark energy bursts upward from the Black Pyramid, and Nagash comes out of it. And everybody stops fighting for a minute because it's like, holy man, and they are just like mesmerized. I mean, they're all undead out here, and here's the Lord of the Undead just standing there like, hello, I'm Nagash, and you're all in a world of trouble. Uh, the only one who is able actually to break this spell is Setra, 
and his uh, his servant next to him is the spell's broken on him because Cetra's right next to him and shouts at him. Uh, the archers start firing. Fire! The archers reform, start shooting at Nagash. Nagash looks at him pissed off, opens his mouth, and all these undead insects swarm out and just eat all the archers. Uh, the bronze colossus charges at him and is about to stab him. He looks at it. It stops, turns around, and starts attacking the other forces. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, this is the uh, final scenario in that book as well. Yeah, I kind of wasn't expecting this. Like, But this is really cool. Yeah, this is that final scenario, the one they did the, uh, like you said, the one that uh, they did the battle report with, where it's Nagash yeah. himself against everybody. Yes. Um, I love when the lich priests start to read from the scrolls and try to raise people up. Yeah. And where is it here? I think I've got it here. Um, Almarn... Almanra, the lich priest, attempted to tap into the rich flow of the winds of magic. His reading of the sacred scroll ended in a gurgled strangle, the dusty papyrus bursting into flames. Almanra's call to the realm of souls was answered, not by the souls of long-dead Nehekarn warriors, but by Nagash. It was he who ruled the underworld now. So their magic, anything that calls into the underworld to raise souls or anything... Nagash is the one who's there. They're basically calling right to him, and he's like, "Uh, no, die." Yeah, that's crazy. So he's finally going to actually kill off like much of the uh, their Karens. Yeah. So I mean, he's and now he's powerful, but he's still not impervious to attack. He gets attacked. They got all these warriors hitting him. They're hitting him. They're wounding him. Nebethnar, who's or Nebethar, who's that's uh, the champion of the royal guard for Cetra, the one that snapped out of it. He's trying to get to him because he sees he's wounded. He sees he's kind of bleeding a little bit. Um, while Nagash is healing himself, he's like, "Someone's got to get there quick." And then behind him, behind Nagash's back, all of a sudden the sand rises up, and all of these scarabs rise up, and Prince Apophis is there, and. Uh, Stabs him in the back. Pop the sword pops out his chest, and they're like, yeah. "This will kill him." And he's got it in there, and he's twisting it. And Nagash suddenly is covered with all these scarabs. Like he totally just overruns him, tries to stab him and devour him. And this is really kind of cool. He's <laughs> like, "Wow, this is neat." Uh, and he thinks he's one, but all of a sudden the blade gets cold, and his hands turn icy. And someone grabs him by the shoulders, and he looks up, and Nagash is staring him in the face and laughing at him. And uh, he basically. Turns him to dust. It was just too late. So basically what happens, and here we get to the wrap-up here. Uh, Cetra and Nebathar fight their way free of all these zombies and all this, and they're trying to get to Nagash. Uh, and he is just, he's got, he's got a 50-strong chariot formation falling behind him. So they got all these chariots coming at him. Uh, he reaches sort of into the underworld, pulls out an ethereal sickle, and just wipes out about half of them. Then blast out of his eyes, and, and every all the bones of anyone that's caught in the blast blacken and turn to dust. They're gone. Uh, Nebathar and a couple others run by, and they clip Nagash with their weapons, but that does them no good. They Basically, their chariots sort of get flipped and explode, and he lands in the ground. He's all busted up. The only person still going after him is Cetra. It's like the final battle. He's riding in his chariot. And Nagash is like, come on, come on. He's coming at him. And Nagash is leaning heavily on his staff. It looks like he's wounded. And all of a sudden, Nagash starts this chant, and Cetra's brooch that always protects him, you know, the protection of Assyrian from the underworld. There ain't no more Assyrian from the underworld. He's screwed. <laughs> uh, dark cloud. He finishes. Dark cloud goes around him. The skeletal steeds turn to dust. He's still coming. 
he's you know he he can't be shoved out of his body so easily. So he's got that sword, and the sword is glowing, and he challenges Cetra to combat. And Cetra looks at him and just keeps doing a spell and finishes it like, yeah, like I'm going to fight you one-on-one sword to sword. Uh, reaches out his hand and closes it, and Cetra can't move. But he still he's, he starts moving again. He's stepping closer, and another step, and another step, and then Nagash raises his hand up, and he's just floating there in the air. And the light in his sword goes out, and it just drops to the ground, and they're like, Oh, and the uh, basically his whole army is like, they bow down. They're like, okay, we lost. Game over. Yeah. And uh, this is great. The Black Pyramid rips out of the earth. The biggest single construction ever built. And starts to fly out like a flying saucer. Just lifts out and starts floating away. Cetras, I'm taking, I mean, the guy's like, I'm taking my pyramid with me. Well, yeah. One. So I love here Nagash is like, it's over. And Underworld is mine. Nehekar is mine. Soon I'll confront the chaos gods themselves. He's like, I don't want Nehekara. I'm coming to make myself a god. And he looks at him and he, and he offers Setra a chance to be one of his Mortarks, which has to be, he had to know Setra would say no. This is more an insult than anything else. You know, you can live if you want to be my servant. Or am I out of line? Or, or do you disagree with me on that one? Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, just uh, rubbing it in. It's his oldest foe. Yeah. So, so then basically uh, there's a big flash of light, and then Cetra is broken into his component pieces and scattered around in the sand. Yeah. That's it. He's busted into pieces. But his spirit still doesn't leave. He's stuck there. Like in his body. Um, and then Nagash all by himself levels Kemri. This is pretty cool. Like you're reading this and uh, like great clouds of dust swept across the desert as minarets are torn down. Temples shaken apart by the tremors. The shatter of tiles and the shrieking of torn metal racked as the upper floors of buildings tumbled to the ancient passageways below. Um, and this is this is the best part right here. The assembled kings and vampires watched in silence as the temples and palaces that had weathered the millennia tumbled into ruin. They knew that the labor was as much a lesson to them, a lesson to them all, as it was an erasure of Cetra's rule. Defy me, and you will be torn asunder, and your cities too will be dust. That was the lesson Nagash taught that day. Yep, he's a. <laughs> Putting his mark down, he ain't gonna dude around, is he? Like, I mean, Kemri is gone. Like it's, dis- I mean, flattened, not beaten, flattened. And then he summons up a stand- sandstorm that lasts for several hours and buries the city. And then he says it's done, and they're all like, "It's not even close to done. It's just starting. It's done at this city." And then basically he goes and destroys every city in Nehekara in turn. The armies either join me and leave. Or stay and die and be buried with your cities. King Far resisted. A few others resisted. Uh, Kalita bowed to, ne- to Nagash. She joins him. If only, it'd be only because she knows if she resists, she'll never get to kill Neferata. Yeah. That could be quite a fun little little story to follow up. That Yeah, that's going to be coming up later. That's going to be interesting. Largest undead army ever moves out. And the Black Pyramid just floating behind them. Wait for me. I'm the Black Pyramid. 
Nagash holds a council of his Mortarks, uh, including the restored Krell. Yay. Yeah. And uh, then uh, in the last little part, um, so, oh, uh, basically they got to head back to Sylvania because that death magic is heading there and the demons are heading towards Sylvania. They could, They want that magic. And this was powerful to his final ascension to the ranks of godhood. So it's going to be his fortress. The Black Pyramid is going to be in the center of Sylvania. Yeah, we can see that being the uh, the final fighting ground. Yeah. The first battles had been won, but the true war was only beginning. And then you get this last page with this great picture. This red sun and this lone figure standing on all these barren rocks. Yeah. And... uh Cetra's head is watching the sunrise, and it's been watching the sunrise for apparently months. He can't watch the sunset because he doesn't have a body, so he can't roll his head over. Hmm. He's just stuck there watching it. And it's, This is one part where you feel bad. For the first time in, in millennia, he's wished he was just merely human so he could die and be in peace. And uh, suddenly the winds come up and all of his body parts start pulling back together. And he stands up there and he hears this, uh, the battle's only, four voices. Somehow, one danced on the breeze, the words burbling with laughter. The battle's only over if you wish it. You can be a king again. Cetra gave no reply and stared silently across the Cambrian sands. So the gods of chaos are giving him another chance. The enemy of my enemy. Yeah, and one of the great... Warriors of all time. Yes. That's uh, that's pretty cool, actually. It is cool. That's a pretty darn cool ending. Like, I, I got to that, I was like, wow. Like, you knew Nagash was going to win this, but damn. I mean, levels everything, destroys everyone in his path, and then finally, it's like, oh, and he's not even gone. It's, yeah. he's... He's he's brought back, which is cool. I mean, Cetra was such a, such a huge character, and he's been around for so long that for the Chaos Gods to give him a chance to come back at him that made that made sense to me. Um, I really wasn't bothered by it in that sense. Um, just interested to see how they use it going forwards. To how yeah, what, you know, where does Cetra fit into their armies, kind of thing. My interest is peaked at the very least. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, you know what? Uh, we've reached the end of the book, so we are finally we have. done. And, Greg, thanks for sticking this out with me over the, over a period of a couple of days of recording while you've got a sore throat and a cold. Um, but, folks, that's Nagash. <laughs> Yeah, you've got to do it all again in a, like a month or something. I think we're going to do it. We're going to. I'm going to have to give Chris a little bit of time to read the book. We're not going to do it the, within two weeks of it coming out, like we did here, because it's ridiculous. We yeah. have to spend all of our time reading. There's a lot of reading. That's a lot. Like, yeah, it is, especially when you're taking notes. It's something that um, it's. I think it's underestimated when you're trying to structure something so that it makes sense is how long it takes just to take notes. Yeah. I mean, if we're just going to read it and I'm just going to take, you know, notes on each, you know, if I'm just if I'm just going to write down the headings and the one or two things I think is cool, yeah, I can do that. But then you just sort of get 
just a hodgepodge and you forget a lot of stuff and you miss a lot of stuff. I just think it's so cool. And I wanted to cover like every bit because there's so much going on here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm so excited. I mean, the next book is coming out hopefully in about three, four weeks. And um, I mean, what with that little blurb we just saw recently with the new Nurgle stuff coming out that can go for warriors or demons or beast men. I mean, that's that's just making me wonder all sorts of things about what's going to be in this next book because I believe it's Archeon. Yeah, rumors are it's Archeon. So, yeah, if we're looking at that and we're going to see all of that battling and stuff like that. So now we're going to roll back a bit. So while all this is going on, that's what's going on over there. And uh, if it's half as cool as what was going on here, this is going to be great. Yeah. How many books is this supposed to be? They say four? Um, yeah, I mean, we don't know. This is rumors anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, I heard four. I, I think uh, you would have to have probably separate books between what's going on in the Elven Kingdoms and with Archaon. And then I would have thought a final book to bring them all together. But that's, you know, that's me just trying to think it through yeah it's just it's kind of crazy i'm just i'm really excited and uh but i got it dude we got to go folks thank you so much for listening to all of this this is the end of episode 106 we'll be back in a couple weeks with episode 107 which will have nothing to do with this as we talk about gaming and hobbying and basic warhammer stuff and uh a a a book coverage free episode for the first time in in what seems like quite a while so uh (laughs) Everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a few weeks. Greg, thanks again for coming on. No worries, and, dude. And uh, I will talk to you soon, brother. And guys, for everyone, from Chris and myself, thank you for listening. See you in episode 107. See ya. You've been listening to Garage Hammer. If you like the show, we invite you to join the Garage Hammer community by joining our forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or our Facebook page, Garage Hammer Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, follow David at Garage Hammer, and follow Chris at Topher Chris U. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach David through David at garagehammer.net. You can reach me, that's Chris, through Chris U at garagehammer.net. And you can reach both of us through garagehammer at live.com. If you want to help support Garage Hammer, check the support page or the show store on our website, or leave us a positive review on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. For the first time in millennia, Setra the Imperishable, the great king of Nehekaro, wished that he were mortal, if only so that he could die. The wind swept across the sands once again. Setra felt a will not his own surge through his scattered bones, making them whole once more and infusing them with a new strength. Setra staggered to his feet, his thoughts of despair fading like a distant mirage. He felt strength coursing through his limbs, a vigor he had not known in millennia. Was this some trick? wondered the Kemrikara. Four voices that were somehow one danced on the breeze, their words bubbling with laughter. The battle is only over if you wish it. You can be a king again. Cetra gave no reply and stared silently across the Kemrian sands.